everybody and welcome to the second ever episode of the Horror Cult Films Podcast. For folks who joined us last time, it's good to have you back. For those who didn't, then we're pleased to meet you. For this, this tricky second episode, we wanted to look at some number twos. And so this episode will be dedicated to covering three of them. Coming up, we've got the triple threat of Damien, the Omen 2, Psycho 2, and Silent Hill Revelation. Of course, those three films are far too much for me to tackle by myself, so I'm joined by the unholy trinity themselves. Once again, we have Jim Lamming, we have our webmistress, our webmistress Steph, and this time we have the privilege of being joined by Ross Hughes. Hi, guys! Hello! So, folks, you are parts of the original Horror Cult Films team. I believe this website's been going since 2011. How did this come about? Well, it probably in about in 2010, I had the idea of creating a website. And originally, it was going to be a website for everyone to be able to post reviews of the films. So a bit like Internet Movie Database in a, in a way. But I'd already been for about four or five years um, a member of Empire Forums. Now, Empire Magazine had, used to have a forum. It doesn't anymore. Um, but myself, Jim, Ross and a whole load of others, all the original writers of um, Horror Cult Films are all from Empire Magazine forums. We all met on there in the Weird and Strange thread, I believe it was, Ross. Yes, it was. So I went on over there after lurking and uh, chatting with the, the guys and said, hey, I've got a website. Do you want to fancy leaving some of your, of your reviews on there? Because they were posting reviews on the forums, but they were only being seen by other members of the forum. Um, so a website would give them a bigger platform. I think they listened, they looked, they listened. Might have had a little look at the website and thought, yeah, but then give it a week or two and they thought, actually, yeah, let's let's have a look. I'll post my reviews. And one by one, they came over and that's how our little Motley crew got together. And that was probably round about October, November of uh, 2010. And Matt, DJ, who was one of the original members, he said, I think it was him and Ross maybe, uh, mentioned why don't we get it going with the news posts as well. So rather than just being reviews and let's create a team rather than letting it all on sundry sort of post because it can get out of hand. I know that I know now, now know this with um, doing websites a lot. So we decided to set it up more like an online magazine. And I would probably say then the official launch of that was 2011, around about March time. And... 10 years later, we're still going, and I'm sure in 10 more, 10 more years' time, we'll still be here. We'll be 10 years older, not so wiser. Might have grey in her. <laughs> Steph, do you remember the first film we reviewed for the cinema release? The very cinema first film. release? Yeah, I looked today. It was March 23rd, uh, 2011, and it wasn't even a horror film. It was Limitless with Bradley Cooper. I reviewed that. <laughs> Yeah, that was the first we 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 had we we put on we put on reviews which was just mostly from Empire, but we done a section in for cinema releases, and that was the first one we done. I'm thinking that was the day that we branched out a bit more because by then we we were posting reviews from Empire, you know, the old ones like Halloween's and stuff like that. But when we decided then to do cinema releases, Limitless was the one that started the ball rolling. But I got apologise to I, I I got a I got apologise to Steph for because I remember the old days when she posted you know hi you guys I've uh, 
I started a website and I think we just ignored it for the first two weeks. <laughs> the, the posts were coming up and I was too busy posting John Locke's head on an hamster, which is a long story. <laughs> I think Steph, I think Steph gets what I'm on about there. <laughs> Absolutely. Picture form of John Locke. I think we all want to crack at that. Matt was the, the one who jumped yeah, on. Sorry, posting they were fun times. Yeah, you all remember that, don't you? <laughs> there was a thread, David, by John Locke, you know, from Lost. And I, I assumed just, it was that John Locke, eh? Yeah, they, the people just posted him in random situations, and some of them were just absolutely ingenious. They would put Steven Spielberg to, say, uh, to shame, I go beyond. So they, and but, God, uh, the, the Empire magazine form no longer exists, so people can never see this anymore. No, any it's gone, it's delete, which is a shame. What about you, Jim? So you're, of course, the video games editor. Yeah, I started, uh, I think it was around March 2011. And my first review was for Deadly Premonition, the cult horror game, which is very questionable in design, but very fun to play. I uh, finished it again myself recently, so uh, everything's cyclical, it seems. Um, but yeah, um, I remember stalking the Empire Forum. I-, I wasn't very vocal in the little group that everyone kind of met in at first I mean, it was quite a broad spectrum of different topics on there and uh, I, I did kind of lurk around in the weird and strange ones because I enjoyed their banter, their conversations and yeah once things started taking off with the site I developed more of an interest and then started getting a bit more involved and eventually started submitting my own reviews and so on um, and I took on with the majority of the video game reviews uh, articles that sort of thing but eventually I moved into reviewing films as well and comics and anything else that, that took my fancy really um, and although I have kind of fallen off a bit recently I still try and keep my hands in it quite a lot with a good mix of film and game I hope. I, uh, I still try and do one a week. I remember last year I did uh... 83 film reviews, but because of Fright Fest, that kind of biased it because you're doing multiple ones at once. It wasn't, it wasn't 83 articles. I, of course, joined in 2012 after a conversation when I was at work and I was tweeting about the movie Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. I was reading a copy of the original script from it, which is very different. And uh, I assume it was Steph who was using the Twitter account and we, uh, we just started chatting about the film, and then I ended up going, oh, I want to write for the website. And now, let's begin with today's episode by discussing what the heck have you guys been watching recently? Uh, Steph, let's start with you. What have you been watching recently? Oh, well, first off, I last weekend I decided to watch um, Breeder, which is a Danish movie, and it's about this organisation that starts to sell, like, um a youth formula, but it's targeted more to the elite and initially only to men. And it has the power of obviously reducing aging, but it also um, can rewind the aging process. So it can actually knock years off you. So obviously a lot of people are interested. I got quite a lot of, uh, I got Countess um, Bathory vibe from it, to be honest. It's, and it starts very well. And it almost goes into a bit like a hostile territory, not quite like, torture porn like that but if you watch it you'll get what i mean that that was a decent watch i have heard that film is really really minging yeah it's got a bit of grime to it because it's 
it ends up being, I don't want to ruin it too much, but it ends up being set in like a, an old abandoned factory or underground facility. There's a lot, there's scenes that involve underground basically, uh, and there's rooms. I'm trying not to ruin this. Um, so yeah, there are elements because of the conditions down there, it is grimy. It's not like hostile like there's limbs being chopped off like that. It's not quite like that. It's, I think it's more the oh, like a survival thriller drama sort of thing but i definitely got some countess bathory vibes going on there but my highlight of the week has to be llamageddon now let's be what <laughs> llamageddon llama as in the okay. animal geddon as in armageddon yeah what's llamageddon i've never heard of this right so i'm sure this will be up jim street so i think it's i think it was made in 2015 and i've been um following the twitter account for ages but it's actually available on amazon for free if you've got amazon prime and involves alien species of llama that crash lands on Earth. And um, I don't want to ruin it again. And it's... In the... <laughs> yeah, so... I don't think you can ruin Llamageddon by the signs of it. So, yeah, Llamageddon involves an alien species of llamas and they all sort of fly off around space. I don't know where they're heading, but one of them ends up going off course, it seems, and crash lands on planet Earth into this field that belongs to, like, the local farmer or what have you. Um, and then it's designed to stalk the household that is nearby. But they use a real llama. This is what's so brilliant about it. Um, it's got an amazing opening scene that's an, um, an animation with a rock soundtrack, like a metal soundtrack. It, it, honestly, God, I can't explain how brilliant this film is, right? It, yeah. And this it's the fact that awesome. I mean, it's, it, it totally spoofs. In, Spoofs. It's, it's not. It's um, doesn't take itself seriously at all. It just has fun with the entire concept. I mean, even it stalks teens in a house, and the teens as well. They're a laugh. Just the stuff they get up to. Clearly, the filmmakers behind this film, and it is a feature-length film. It's not a short. Um, they, they have so much fun with it, and I don't. I can't really say anymore. You just have to watch it. I think if you're into the types of um, b-movie creature features that me and jim are into then you'll love it i highly recommend it I, you know what I, I am giving it four out of five watch it lamageddon folks four out of five uh, jim what have you been watching recently well, well i've just written down lamageddon so i'll make sure <laughs> i get, get into that uh, i was going to mention that i watched the crow day and you know it's a gothic masterpiece Exceptional soundtrack, incredible set design, miniature work. And you've got the extra layer of tragedy on an already macabre story. But then yesterday, I found a film, again on Amazon Prime. This place is an absolute goldmine. It's an Australian martial arts film called Day of the Panther. And the main character is called Jason Blade. Ooh, that's a cool name. You wouldn't mess with Jason Blade. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I need to say anything else about that. I mean, if you don't want to watch it after that, then there's something wrong with you. Um, they, literally, every scene is in, pretty much, he gets to say his full name. He's answering the phone, <laughs> Jason Blade. You know, even going to his hotel or, or speaking to someone in a casual conversation or use his full name, Jason Blade. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm even considering changing my name to that now. To be fair to Jason Blade, if you were called that, it's like in uh, Commando where you have John Matrix. If that were your name, you would use it a lot. 
So it's a great little combo of totally ordinary first name and then Blade afterwards. You know, David <laughs> Smith does not have the same fucking ring to it. You know? Yeah, I've, um, I think it's my first experience of the Australian martial arts scene as well. Um, <laughs> set in the uh, Kung Fu capital of Perth. <laughs> Uh, taking down drug dealers and uh, being called Jason Blade. I, I don't think there's anything more I can add to that that wouldn't make you want to watch it already. Jim, is it a spoof? Is it a no, spoof? It's, it's a genuinely sincere action film. Uh, I, I thought it was at first. Like, I, I read the synopsis and saw the guys, and they went, I've got to watch that. But no, it's a genuinely serious martial arts movie. It starts off with this dead serious opening about being in Hong Kong, learning Kung Fu from the masters, and then they have to go to Australia for obvious reasons, the fact that it's cheap. Um, and yeah, it just goes from there. It's absolutely ridiculous, and I loved it. Cool. Uh, Ross, what have you been watching recently? Well, like, I can't top that, too. I've got to be honest with you. Lamageddon and also, well, well uh, I've been watching The Walking Dead again from start to finish. Don't ask me why. I started doing it last week. I gave up about two years ago, was it three years ago in season seven? Not because of what Negan done, but no spoilers, obviously, because, but I think that episode is underrated. It's one of the best episodes of all time. But I, I found it got very, very boring. But what binge watching it, I'm watching it now. It's absolutely fantastic. Season seven, which I thought was dull and boring and bland, it's absolutely brilliant. You can see all the chess pieces getting put together, and I just think it's very, very underrated. It's the kind of TV show that needs to be binge-watched, especially the later seasons. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I've, I've uh, gone through the last couple of series myself recently um, because, like you, I just kind of fell off. I, I just lost interest. Yeah. And I think having them all there ready and waiting now and just going through it at your leisure is much better than having to wait week in, week out. And, you know, one week you could have a really boring filler episode and it just kills the momentum for you and you're just not interested after that but yeah watching it all back to back was a much better experience but like you said when you got that 45 minute episode where they just sit around talking let's go to war and nothing happens to wait a week you think oh do I really want to watch this again but if you watch the next episode soon after it's the payoff you get it straight away and I just think it's absolutely brilliant I've actually got my walking dead love back after absolutely hating it over the last two or three years. I stopped at um, the second season of The Walking Dead, but I quite liked Fear the Walking Dead instead. <laughs> That's a lot of dead's eds. Um, yeah, I just, I found the, um, the Walking Dead a bit boring, to be honest. Maybe I should give it another go. Maybe I'm being too harsh because I know there's a lot of love for it out there, but Fear the Walking Dead seems to grip me better. The first six seasons of The Walking Dead is probably the best TV around. It's absolutely fantastic. And Negan is probably the best character, and he doesn't turn up for season seven. I absolutely loved the the uh, telltale video games of The Walking Dead. Ah, yes. Those were brilliant. They get properly emotional at points. You're like, I don't want to do this. Folks, the movies that I've been watching recently is watching one called The Call. It's a South Korean film that's currently on Netflix. Has anyone else seen this one? No, I've heard, no, no. I've heard good things about it, though. I absolutely loved it. I'm going to say good things there. See, 
time travel-ish movie that starts off a bit like, uh, you know that old film Frequency where they, people are able to talk between years through a radio? It begin, begins a bit like that. However, about half an hour in, there's a, something I wasn't expecting to happen happens, and it's really, really unexpected, really ingenious, and completely changes the movie you're watching. I was, I was absolutely thrilled for the second half, and uh, in fact, the second two-thirds, and I would so strongly recommend it. That's uh, so the call. If I had seen it last year, because it came out in December, that would have made my top 10 for last year. The other stuff I've been watching is less impressive. I watched Wrong Turn 7 recently. <laughs> Wrong Turn 7 changes the villains, changes almost all the iconography, it changes the style, it changes the backing story, changes the basic scenario. So it really shouldn't be called Wrong Turn at all. It's a bit like the Suspiria remake, you know, in that you're taking the most Suspiria elements out of it and then still using the name. And if Wrong Turn 7 here, or, well, just Wrong Turn as it's called, we're going down the Halloween route. With Wrong Turn, you don't have your three villains, whatever they're called, Free Finger, One Eye, something, I can't remember what the other one's called, but you don't have them in it. And you don't have anything like the same big kills. You've got a first half that's far too dumb for the second half because it's too silly a film to be profound. But then the second half, when it starts, it goes a slightly different way. It's way too slow to be a guilty pleasure. So basically, it's a film that's all right. It just doesn't really succeed at being a slasher that I don't think is good enough to be the new Midsummer. And uh, the other thing I watched was the I Know What You Did Last Summer trilogy, where you got one pretty decent film, one really dumb, uh, fun film, and one absolutely pish film. I reckon with the second one, and I know that uh, Mr. Hughes will agree with me here, part of its brilliance is the single most convoluted plan any villain has ever had, where the villains have every opportunity to kill off the cast, but rather than do it the easy way, they decide to buy them a trip to the Caribbean. Like, and move them up in an all-expenses-paid uh, all stay in a hotel and then decide to try and kill them, including having to kill off the hotel staff. You're like, what the heck was that about? But uh, overall, very decent fun uh, movie, guilty pleasure, and goes well for first. Third, less said the better. In fact, well, with the third one, um, it's got part of a new part of a new Blu-ray set where you've got uh, it's about eighty-eight films. You've got all three, and you've got tons and tons of extras. I put on the commentary for the third movie, just a curiosity thing, and it's got one of the people from eighty-eight films talking about it, and they openly say they think it's shit. So you know. <laughs> Speaking of Blu-rays, um, Host has just been released in a tasty um, Blu-ray box set from Second Sight with postcards and the works. That's worth checking out, I reckon. Oh, absolutely. Host was a brilliant film. Uh, Ross, you were a big fan of that as well, right? Uh, which one? The new one or the, the Monster Creature one? Oh, no, no. We mean the, the internet one. Oh, the this. internet one. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's something which we have, you know, um, we've... It was, 
it's something which we needed at the time. It was a lack of material out last year. It hit shudder and everyone lavished the praise. But I think if it was released on normal circumstances, I don't think it would get the acclaim it would. And yes, that is controversial. Fair it is. What about you, Jim? Jim, were you a fan of Forst? I've not watched it. Um, I don't have shudder, so sorry. <laughs> Jim, have you seen Unfriended? No, I haven't. I, I was going to say, if you've seen Unfriend, have you seen Host? <laughs> yeah, fair that's enough. Hard, but yeah, as, as we discussed in the last episode, I'm not a big fan of the uh, found footage genre, so it's not something I tend to go out my way to watch usually. What a great time to be a horror fan. I mean, we've got Shudder, um, Arrow of Re- Arrow Video um, have recently launched um, Arrow Player in the UK, Canada and America, I believe. And that's put all the back catalogue digital as well i mean you've got amazon you've got netflix shudder i'm sure there's other ones as well that probably target the horror crew um but i mean what a time to have access you know you've got youtube as well you've got the independent makers out there who can upload their content onto amazon and i'm sure on shudder and things like that so i think we're living in a time of abundance of horror and i think more it's more accessible for people which can only be a good thing to grow the community Absolutely. And with Shudder, I mean, fair play to Shudder. They have really come into their own in the last two or three years, you know? I remember when Shudder first started, their big selling point is they're like, we have the grudge versus the ring, right? And uh, that's your, that's like your big Shudder exclusive. Whereas in the last few years, they've had so many good kind of foreign indie films that, uh, you know, you would never see otherwise. Like, you know, you get the stuff last year, like in Pettigore, the uh, the pool, films like this that just wouldn't get uh, a proper release in the UK were it not for them. Anything so, for Jackson, that's another one. Yeah, that, yeah, that anything for Jackson. Absolutely fab, that movie. You know, um, yeah, I think Shudder had been, been knocking out the park recently. And it's a, it was really good for Host as well, because you're looking at a film that's one hour long. That couldn't have been released at the cinema properly. And uh, while it's now got a Blu-ray, that's, that Blu-ray only exists because the film was so damn popular on Shudder. You know, I mean, it's uh, hard to get distribution for a film that's not feature length. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely congratulate Host for, uh, sorry, Host, Shudder for taking a punt on Host. I'd love to see more shorter horrors as well. And that might be a controversial comment, but we see movies these days going longer and longer. But I quite like the fact it was about an hour long. I can fit that into my day. I'm a busy woman. You know this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish a film on our list coming up was shorter, let me tell you. <laughs> when, uh, yeah, when we were preparing for this, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, you know what? Watching free films and taking notes on free films in a week where you're also doing other things, often like watching other films. Um, yeah, it took up a surprisingly high amount of time. Speaking of which... Let's jump into the first of these. The first of these is going to be Damien Omintu. We heard him talking to Dad. Well, what did he say? He said the, the devil could create his image on Earth. The devil? What else did he say? Say it, Mark. He said you're the beast. Come on. What are you talking about? I've seen what you can do. Your father tried to kill you. They say he was crazy, but it was because he knew. I love you, Mark. You're like my brother. No! No! You are my brother. And you mean... 
mean more to me than... The beast has no brother! Don't call me your brother! Listen to me, Ma! Admit it! You killed your mother! No! She wasn't my mother! I was adopted! A jackal! You were born of a jackal! Yes. Born in the image of the greatest power in the world. The desolate one. Desolate because his greatness was taken from him and he was cast down. But he has risen, Mark. In me. So Damien, the Omen 2 was released two years after the original Omen film. This is where we follow the adventures of young Damien as he goes off to military school. Folks, I was thinking what we could do is talk about overall impressions of this movie, then we'll go through the good, the bad, and some of the ugly. Uh, what did folks think, generally speaking, of this film? Were you guys fans? Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a good continuation from the first film. Um, it's been a while since I've seen the third, but we're not talking about that today. Uh, um, but no, I, I really enjoyed it. I remember um, when I first watched it and I enjoyed it then and I still enjoy it now. Um, I think it manages to take the that menace um, from the first film and thread it through to the second without dropping the ball. So I'm definitely a fan. You guys uh, you guys agree with that? Or what, what are your, Jim, are you a fan of uh, Woman Part 2? Yeah, I enjoyed it overall. Um, it started off stronger than it finished, I feel. But... Um for the most part, it was a good little horror film. Um, I, I've i got a thing about films filmed on film. <laughs> <laughs> um, they just look so much better. And I know it's a daft thing to say about a horror film, but there's a certain coziness to it. And I felt that I did to watching this. And... Um, it's, as Steph says, is a great continuation to what is essentially one of the best horror films ever made. And um, it, it kept it going, and I had a good time. And uh, Ross, were you big on it? Yeah, and I think that uh, it lacks the quality of the first one. Because obviously, Richard Donner is no longer directing. Uh, to me, Donner was probably the 70s version of Christopher Nolan back in the day because he'd done something like Omen, Superman, Lethal Weapon, and in between there was the Goonies. And of course, Christopher Nolan, Insomnia, Batman, Inception. So I think Don is such an underrated director. But Don Taylor, he done a real good job. It's a fun sequel. I call it the biblical Final Destination. <laughs> I think that's how close we can get with the deaths and all that. But it, it lacks the style, but I think, yeah, it's one of the strongest sequels out there. I'm going to let down the side a little. So I selected this film. Um, we nominated we uh, nominated three films between us. This is my pick. The reason it was my pick was because I hadn't seen it in absolutely bloody ages. So I thought, ah, good excuse to rewatch The Omen 2. I got my old school DVD set of it. And when I was watching it, there's enough that I like, and I'll come into that in a moment, there's enough that I liked about it for me to say it's a good film. I just thought it was a real missed opportunity. I thought the main problem I had with it is it should have been more of a coming-of-age film. I want to see Damien having more of a conflict. I want to see Damien wrestling with this side of him that seems to constantly kill people, you know? <laughs> and for me, that was just a bit absent. I thought, eh, Damien is, doesn't really have many relationships with people. Like, his relationship with his cousin should have been the emotional hook of the film. Like, you've even got that bit where, uh, you know, he's 
he's shouting like ah as his, as he uh, watches his cousin get choked, whatever that whatever that thing he's doing is, and. Um, I don't know, I just thought, oh, I don't really feel anything here. You know, I want to get a sense of the character's conflict for the first half. It's kind of ambiguous, like, how much he's aware of the things that's happening. So you have a bit where he stares at that bully, and the bully drops to, uh, you know, drops onto his back, yeah. uh, clutching his chest. And I thought, all oh, right, that's quite boss. But I also was like, you know, what does, does Damien know he's doing this? Like, just what, like, they implied later he didn't, you know, when he's got that... Um, Awakening, where he's in the he's in the guy's showers, and uh, you know he's getting the mirror up to see his six six six, and then he runs down to the water and then just shouts no. And I don't know, I just sort of thought, oh, I wish he built up to this. You know, I wish I wish there'd been more of a sort of a difficulty with this. You know, how would you take it, knowing you're a son of the devil? And it just wasn't a part of the film. That's very valid. Um, yeah, I thought that because obviously it's been a while since I last saw it. Um, and at the beginning, you do think, is, does he know? Is he aware that, you know, is and, and that, like you said, the relationships, he's kind of, with his cousin, I'd like to have seen more of a close-knit, um, even just a, at least a friendship, even if it doesn't have to be, you know, proper, like a brother bond um, between them both. But that point where he does, he runs to like um, the pier, doesn't he, or something, and looks mm. out and, like you say, is like, oh, God. You know, I'm the Antichrist. Cut to the next scene, and he's pretty much embracing the fact there's no conflict whatsoever. It's like, yeah, I'm the Antichrist. I don't like you. And yeah, I can totally understand what you mean by that because beforehand, he kind of got the impression he knew anyway. And then his devastation at the fact that he was, he found out when he found out. And um, and then he, he just seemed to sort of embrace it totally and just thought, you know what, fuck you all. So... <laughs> Definitely an issue there. Uh, yeah, I'll give you that one. I still enjoyed it, though. Perhaps it was the post-production or the pre-production as well. I mean, the film, Mike Hodges was originally directing the film, but they got fired off way through, and also when Don Taylor took over. Uh, so I don't know the ins and outs of why that happened, but you can see there's something... There's a, it's a film of two halves, really. It, it wants to be something, but it ends up just being a straight slasher. Um, but I like it. I mean, Jonathan Scott Taylor as the young boy, he's got such a creepy look. And I, I just bought into it. I, th- I thought it was absolutely a really good sequel to uh, an horror classic. I've got to be honest with you. I'd agree. Yeah. I think the kid was really good in it. I, I, I looked at his IMDb. It seems like he did very little afterwards. Mm, i got no idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought the way the actor portrayed Damien was very, very well done. Um, it's, it's, I, I kind of disagree with what you're saying about his development. I don't necessarily feel there would needed to be much conflict there. I mean, it, as you say, it gets to the point where he realizes he is, you know, the Antichrist, and then he kind of relishes in it. <laughs> I can imagine there are some people around that would be fine with it as well. I mean, yeah, he has that bit in the shower rooms where he sees his birthmark and he comes to the realization of it, but it does feel like there's a bit of a bit of a slow realization throughout the film from when it starts you can you can see it in his face I, I don't know whether he's a brilliant actor or that bad it just looks that good <laughs> just that 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 blank stare is really feeling and he does a good job with it it's always a pondering and creepy sinister look and 
even though he's kind of innocent that at the you know at the beginning he's still just a young lad and you, you've obviously got all these other factors grooming him pushing him towards that realization and i i, I thought that journey was absolutely fine i enjoyed it i think maybe would have worked more for me maybe as if uh, like i suppose the relationship with the family it was more of a cousin i liked how aunt marion absolutely hated him yes. at the start yes. that really amused me <laughs> you've got a bit where you know damien's really nice to her then wanders out and she's like ah damien's he's a bad influence stay away from him and stuff you know um like the bit where she died, I was I was quite happy to be honest. Um, I just I probably would have liked her to be the one that gets uh, like tossed up in front of the front of the van. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I I I don't know. I think maybe the family dynamic was what I needed. I mean, I suppose it was already quite a lengthy film, but it, when it ended, I just thought, oh, is that it? Like we had lots and lots about the foreign in the foreign enterprise and. And it was, actually, that's one thing. It was a really, really polite demonic takeover we're seeing, you know? I see we're going for a bit of satire. They're like, look, we have Satanists in the armed forces. We have Satanists in, uh, in the corporate sector. You know, and there's, I, I assume we were trying to do a sort of a kind of um, bit of social commentary there. However, when you're hearing, oh, yeah, you know, here's, uh, here's the beast walking the earth, and you don't really imagine this kind of all right. I'm going to get a Satanist into into the into the family enterprise, you know, and uh, I'll gradually build my way up to the top so that the next one I can have political influence and then do my takeover. You imagine like buildings burning. You imagine uh, imagine things falling apart. You imagine something more apocalyptic than uh, a bureaucratic process. Isn't that politics anyway? Aren't they? Led, isn't the pol isn't governments led, led by Satanists? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that could be the new Q and on style thing. Um, what, what sort of what, what are the what are the best things about this film? I'm something very negative, and there's absolutely loads I like. And as I said, I thought the the central premise itself is really interesting. You know, Damien, the troubled teen years, while well, most people in puberty experiencing their bodies changing and maybe undergo feelings of awkwardness and a bit of an identity crisis, and he's getting a bit of that, but. You know, his his is really weird. Uh, so I thought that was good. And the mood and tone were consistent with the original. Those were all good. Maybe that's why he embraced being the Antichrist so much, because he's one of them teenagers, you know, and you're that age, aren't you? <laughs> Hating the world. Yeah, I'm the Antichrist, you know. That's probably why that was such an easy transition for him, maybe. <laughs> um, do you know what I love? The music, obviously, is such a big part of the Omen films, but um, also the death scenes. I mean, they're just, it's great because obviously nobody's actually involved like with their own hand, you know what I mean? It's not somebody, well, I suppose you could say towards the end of the film, there is that um, scene where his auntie stabbed his uncle with the special daggers. However, all the, all the other events leading up to it, all the other kills, are all done by like a truck coming down the road, down at a quiet country lane at just, you know, just at the right time. Um, a bit of the birds action, get your eyes pecked out by, <laughs> by a crow. Um, but do you know the one that always sticks in my mind? So when you, when you brought up, let's watch the Omen 2. The one bit I remembered out of it 
out of all of the film was uh, the ice lake scene. Oh, fuck, yes. Yes, that was good. That was, and for, for some reason, I always thought it was his cousin who went underneath the ice, but it's not, is it? It's obviously the um, the chairman, the the manager of um, Thorn, mm. Thorn Industries. Um, but if you actually look, I mean, it's not really foreshadowing because obviously they're all into it. They've all got the skates, but the birthday cake that they have at the party is actually a load of people skating on like an ice rink or an ice lake. And then he goes to cut the cake. I mean, I thought, oh yeah, it's, you know, foreshadowing what's happening, but that maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I got a bit giddy watching the film again, seeing that and thought, oh yeah, I know what's coming up. So, but for me, the cake. It's a good spot, boss. I reckon that was, I reckon that was definitely intended. (laughs) Do you? Sometimes because sometimes you interview the stars or the cast or what have you of these films and you say, oh yeah, and I saw this and I noticed how you did that. And he goes, Oh, really? Well, we didn't plan it. Well, yeah, you know, but I'm wondering with that one, did they? It felt like a sign to me. You know, like, for instance, in the Final Destination films, they're big on signs, aren't they, um, mm. of what's to come. And I feel with that one, that was pro- probably intentional. But um, I think that scene in the beginning as well, um, with the archaeologist, um, and they both get trapped underground i think that was quite claustrophobic i just thought what would i do in that situation i just think oh but the favorite kill of that i mean that the one the lift oh fuck yeah we well, got they got them being cut right in half that was yeah oh, that was a good one i mean i remember resident evil doing something involving a lift which i think resident <laughs> evil did it better the um the dropping of the lift better obviously because Omen 2 was made back in the day and they didn't really have the technology to make it look as good as that. Um, but I'd completely forgot about what follows because obviously it just gets shaken around a bit, doesn't it? But then it's like <laughs> part of the rope mechanism or what have you. It cuts him up like something at an abattoir or a butcher's, you know what I mean? Oh, love it. That was a, that was a very good kill. Uh, agreed on the soundtrack with the exception of the opening music we got this bizarre kind of splat noise going on in the background during it other than that love to soundtrack as well that's another good thing about this movie ross jim you guys you guys have been quite quiet on this one omen too what good things do you have about it yeah i've i've got to agree on the soundtrack again but what do you expect when it's jerry goldsmith i mean that guy's an absolute legend he's made some absolute belters in his time hasn't he and it's been mentioned a couple of times, uh, but yeah, it, it does feel like a prototype Final Destination, really. Um, you mentioned the cave-in at the beginning, Steph, which I also found quite unnerving as well. I mean, the, the way it's slowly drawn out, in, in most films you'll just get them being crushed by the rocks, but here they're trapped and you, you know what's going to happen, but it, it doesn't make it any less comfortable. And it, it's, uh, is it Bugenhagen uh, from the first film as well, his little cameo at the beginning, just watching him doing his little exorcist talk while the dirt is slowly rising up around him. It's just quite horrible. Um, it wasn't particularly scary, certainly, but I have to say, when Aunt Marion was in bed and that crow appears at the foot of the bed, I did cheat it a little bit uh, <laughs> before a little heart attack. Um, and you mentioned the ice hockey scene. That that's just it. it 
kind of borderline slapstick at that point where he's caught in the current and <laughs> you just see him going from one end to the other and like, there he is. No, what lick is there? It did seem like, I don't know, Tom and Jerry playing whack-a-mole at one point. It was very funny that, um, but it was still very entertaining at the same time. And uh, yeah, the one that I also enjoyed was the train car uh, where they are looking at the bit of wall with Damien's face on it that mm. they found at the beginning of the film. And then all of a sudden the train starts moving and you've got um, the museum cur- curator hiding around the side of the car and he just gets squished between another one. And that was quite a good build-up. I enjoyed yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, Bobby, can I start with the ice one? The thing that just makes that so effective is when you've got the shot from, you know, you've got the camera below the, below the ice and the water, and it just felt so, like, you just imagine how, how like, how shit scared you'd be in that yeah. situation when you can't, you can't get up, you know, you're uh, being dragged along underneath this great big sheet, this big heavy sheet, and folks are trying to get to you by smashing the ice, but it's, you know, you're going too fast. I, I thought it was, I thought that was an absolutely brilliant bit. I thought it's a very effective scene in it. I mean, come on, you've been trapped underneath that ice and looking up. It's a proper horror moment. But going back to what Stefan and what you guys said, I think that the elevator scene is one of the best moments in horror, especially in early 70s as well, uh, late 70s horror. It's it's fantastic. The trouble with Omen 2 is they had to beat what the Omen offered with David Warner's head being chopped off, which, of course, is the most horror classic of all time. But uh, I think they I think they matched it, i got to be honest. It's not as good as the first one, but it's just a jolly good time. Honestly, it is. I think I um, held my breath as well whilst two scenes, which we've already mentioned, um, the bit where it's caving in at the beginning, because like Jim said, um, all the rock starts to crumble in front so they can't get out, so they're trapped in that chamber. But then behind them, it crumbles again, and then they're stuck in a, you know, a smaller passage. And then all the sand just starts filtering in. I mean, that's a slow death. Um, and you're just panicking, pure, just looking at it in pure panicking. And the same with the um, the ice lake where they're playing hockey and you see him underneath floating away. I mean, it could be comical in a way. And it is funny when they, when they go, oh, he's over there. And it's, you know, and it is uh, melting that section and he pops up and tries to hold on to that um, branch. And it is kind of funny then. But imagine how frightening that must be like Ross said, looking through at your your loved one, a family member or friend, whoever it is, as they're being sucked, you know, sucked along by the current. And imagine if that was you. That that must be an awful way to go. That I, I don't like water as it is, but just imagine that you're trapped. There's like, God, how, how thick must that ice be? There's there's no way they could have cut through that, and they didn't anyway. But it's I just think we don't really see many kills like that anymore which is genuine fear we get a lot of like torture porn stuff nowadays um but i'd love to see more kills like that which is plays on pure fear i think absolutely and um you know you say well water you know being stuck in water being dragged is bad enough that water is sub-zero and uh you've also got a gigantic roof made of ice above you Lots of bad things going on there. Um, folks, I reckon one of the uh, slightly frustrating things about this film, and this is where we should turn towards anything that didn't really work, is uh, it's very 
formulaic, much like the Final Destination parallel we've been making, which I think is a good one, where essentially the formula is this. Someone suspects there's something amiss about little Damien, then they die. And that's it. Something, then later on, someone else goes, it's Damien, something's a little amiss about him. And then they die, because no, the uh, parents have to, have, have to only find out of the latest possible moment. Um, that, I thought, was slightly tedious. The, um, but, you know, I mean, it still does lead to a bit of a person who goes, oh, he's got the DNA of a jackal. And then dies shortly after. And that, that was good. Uh, but what about you guys? Anything else, that, anything for you that didn't particularly work about it? I, I think it was just the repetition for me. Um, it, it got to the point where I believe they go on the field trip to the factory um, just just before you've got the big gas explosion, which then leads them onto the hospital. But by that point, I was just thinking, yeah, we, we, we get what's happening now, so just get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just really started to drag its feet there for me. And it was probably up to... The part with the train car once uh, Damien's uh, dad finally comes to the realization of what's happening. That's when it picked up interest for me again. I mean, yeah, you've got a couple of good kills between those points, but everything else, the drama and everything else, I could have it could have just gone a lot quicker for me. Um, Ross, what about you? Anything that anything you weren't too keen on? I just thought where the sun was coming down at the beginning, if it was Indiana Jones, he would have got out of there. <laughs> no, but the, the ending, I thought I, even when I watched it when I was younger, and I, it's a weak ending. I mean, she, the, is it the wife? She stabs him and the daggers. Sorry for spoilers. It's just a weak, weak ending. And you just think Damon gets away with it again, which obviously sets up Omen 3 with, with Sam Neill. But yeah, it, it's, not really, it's not really a big climatic ending, is it? They, they lead us up to that one that lead us up to that point and then it just ends all of a sudden with Damon looking out freaky like he's won the day. But while actually as he won, he didn't actually do anything, did he? Yeah, he just kind of walks in, frogs his shoulders and buggies yeah. off again. Yeah. The, the Raven done more the Raven the done more work on him. He's accomplished is getting that guy uh, Paul into the position where Paul is now in charge of a foreign company. That's the main thing Damien's accomplished. And he didn't even do that, yeah. he didn't do that knowingly. Like we've got the bit where it's, he goes off to uh, he goes off to India, and all the people he's meant to be meeting die. It all happens off screen, and uh, you know we're like, oh, isn't this suspicious? Everyone who's standing in your way keeps dying. He's like, <laughs> right, and um, it's like a demonic house of cards thing going on. And uh, the thing is that subplot, it's kind of happening in the background. We don't really have a whole lot of crossover between them until the realisation that, oh, well, this guy is obviously a Satanist. Just like uh, Lance Henriksen's character. I can't believe we've not mentioned Lance Henriksen. He looks so young in this one. I know. Do you know what? I didn't even realise it was him at first. Before the fags took over. Yeah. I think that, that that was probably a couple of years before he became permanently, like, 58, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, he's not got his, the big folds in his face developed yet or anything. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's good. Before we move on, have you guys, uh, just to keep this bit short, have you guys seen the other Omens? I've, I've watched the free, The Awakening and the remake. The fourth one is absolutely diabolical. Mm -hmm. Is it, what, is it, what was the daughter's name? 
I can't even remember. Oh, I, I, I don't no, want to watch it again to find out. That's awful. Uh, and the remake again. It's, it's, I watched it once and I never ever want to watch it again. I wanted the wave <sighs> and to come and uh, claw my eyes out the Gorbion's though. I forgot about the remake. Um, I, I remember being quite into seeing that for some reason. But yeah, it's was it the six 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 release date? Is that yes, of course, six of June two thousand and six, and I still never ended up going to watch it. I got it on DVD in the end. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that remake was unnecessary. It was basically the same film, and. I've seen Omen 3, but I have very little recollection of it because I think that was back when the remake had uh, come out, so I was interested in watching the rest. I mean, the original I've seen about a million times because I remember way back when BBC Three first uh, came on here. I'm pretty sure the Omen was on every Friday night. I mean, the Omen is just such a classic. Um, the Omen 2, I still enjoy it. Yeah, it has got its faults, and I agree with David um, how... There should have been like more time, more time for like people to realize that he's, you know, the Antichrist. Um, before, <laughs> before somehow um, Damien finds out, or one of his cronies finds out, and offers him, he didn't give him enough chance, you know. Before, oh right, is the Antichrist dead? You know, it would have been good if they just if they got a bit closer to him. I mean, I suppose the only what the character that got nearer to confronting him was obviously his cousin. But I would have liked to have seen that been developed more, probably with the doctor um, after doing his research, because that would have been a super interesting angle if they got more involved, because then suddenly it's not often one person, it's often a group. Um, and and like at the end of the film, for instance, again, I agree with Ross. Um, I do think it was a weak ending. It just shows, you know, that you don't get no thanks for helping the devil, do you? Um you're still gonna get burnt alive. Um, but if he, if his intention was to off his guardians, his auntie and uncle, he could have done it a lot sooner. So yeah, that ending could have been better. Um, the third one, I can't really. I, obviously, Sam Neill plays a part of Damien in that. Um, I'd have to give that a rewatch because it's been such a long time. I think I, it's good. It gets properly yeah, dark as well. I, I, I have memories of it, and I think I enjoyed it. I watched the first three. I've got the. Um, the pentology on um, DVD, but I didn't watch the fourth one. I didn't even bother with that. And Omen remake, no, I didn't bother. I just saw that kid, the poster with that kid in the um, in the iconic scene, and I just thought mm. he doesn't look, he doesn't look menacing. That original kid, there was something about him, um, you know. And the actor in the second film, I thought, did look like the actor from the first. You know, I thought. They cast that well in um, Omen Two, oh, in Omen Two, um, but no, I wouldn't watch the remake. You all know my thoughts on remakes for the most part. Avoid. Have you guys seen the Omen TV? Uh, the Omen TV oh. show, Damien. That was released about, no. yeah, about four or five years ago. Yeah, it's uh, it ignores part. It ignores the second, third, and fourth film, and it carries on from the first demons older now, and it's pretty good. It jumps on the base motel bandwagon, but yeah, it was. A, I think they've done ten episodes. It was started Twitter's groove, and they axed it, which is a shame, really. Where was that um, playing on? What, what channel? Or was it? Oh, I think it was. I think it was on Fox, right. but it didn't last long. Honestly, yeah, it's on Fox. I saw it advertised when I was doing my Walking Dead rewatch. Actually, that was when I first heard of it. It was only a few weeks back, so. I might give it a try. 
Well, he rounds it up. I think they leave it open for the second season. I mean, you can give and go. It's not as good as the Exodus TV show, which was fantastic, and obviously Basement Tale as well. But it's worth a watch if you like your woman films. Something I'd recommend you folks do if you've got the Pentology DVD set is uh, check out the making of documentary for the remake. The reason being, it's really unintentionally funny because nobody in it, none of the leads, the director, none of them even try and pretend we're having a good time making it. It is the most depressing making of documentary I have ever, <laughs> I've ever bloody well seen. Because obviously <laughs> they were trying to make this in a rush to get the 666 release date. Otherwise, they have nothing to market this with. And uh, no. it's being heavily, heavily rushed. And you see everyone looking worn down, sad, and like, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't really like horror. Then why the hell are you making it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I never get that, but obviously, for some of them, I think it's to retain rights, isn't it? That's why the um, Spider-Man movies kept keep getting remade. It's to retain the rights, otherwise they lose them. So I wonder if that had anything to do with it. It could well have done so, because you've got um, some some of them, like, I know with Dimension who do, do Hellraiser and uh, Children of the Corn, and uh, with them, they release Hellraiser and Children of the Corn films every seven years, because they lose rights if they don't make one every seven years. And, you know, for Hellraiser, and especially, they've been going, oh, this Hellraiser remake we've been planning since 2010, right? And uh, they have to just make another Gary Tuncliffe one every so often just to retain the rights to eventually build up to doing something big with it. I know we're doing a TV show of Hellraiser now, which Clive Barker is involved with. Ooh. It's potentially quite promising. I mean, when I heard Clive Barker was selling for rights, I figured, all right, well, you know, he probably just wants some money. But, you know, if he's involved with it, that makes you think, yeah, this could be quite cool. But uh, maybe, that, maybe that's part of it. I've had it quite a few times, and I'm on movie sets doing, uh, back when I lived in London, there's not a whole lot of those in northeast Scotland. And, um, you go onto the set, you know, you're asking all your questions, and something I noticed was a lot of the actors in horror films did not want to admit they're in a horror film. You know, horror was a bit of a bad word in some of them. I thought that was weird. Like, it's not really a horror, it's more of a thriller. A supernatural thriller, that kind of thing. But, uh, it bugs me when you get that kind of response, because it's probably one of the most popular genres the film i mean speak uh, every other person you'd speak to would say that they enjoy it and also horror fans get such a bad rap from you know people who don't like horror oh you're a goth or oh you're a satanist oh you must like you know eating people in your spare time but (laughs) i mean we've whether you've been to a festival to these um, film festivals like fright fest or grim fest and things like that they're the most sweetest people you could ever meet agreed entirely and I just think the horror crowd um, just totally embrace the genre and they've just got so much love and the conventions as well. I think, you know, the, there's quite a lot of actors out there who just purely do horror. Um, maybe they've not been able to break out of it because they've been involved in horror films. Because I think you find a lot of that, especially with Hollywood, there's a bit of snobbery. If you've been in horror, unless it's like um, something like that, they don't, they just see you as like, maybe like B-movie actor or actress. Um, they see horror as a dirty genre, which it shouldn't be. But it's not a bad thing if you never branch out into anything else other than just stay in horror because the love you'll get at the conventions from the fans. I think I don't think there's a fan base in film than horror. Absolutely. And F of record, in case of saying you'd like, I was 
suggesting I've only ever had bad encounters of horror actors. You know, I've met a plenty of horror actors that simply love doing horror. And particularly the directors I've met. Um, you can look up the interviews of the website. The directors I've met have always been really happy to be directing horror films. I didn't know if this is maybe one of those sort of uh, got thespian actors like, oh, well, you know, I'm do- this is my bit of fun, but I, but I live for the stage kind of thing. Um, anyway, we can, all, we can all ponder that in our time. Let's move on to Cycle 2. Hey, stating counsel, you're not going to offer any contradictory psychiatric testimony? Yes, Your Honor. <clears throat> on the basis of the staff report, Norman Bates is judged, restored to sanity, and is ordered released forthwith. What about his victims? Don't they have any say? Can you restore them? Madam, please sit down. This matter is being represented by the district attorney. Your Honor, my name is Mrs. Lila Loomis. I have a petition here signed by 743 people against Norman Bates' release, including the relatives of the seven people he murdered. Doesn't that give me the right to speak out? Has the district attorney advised Mrs. Loomis about her rights in this matter? Yes, Your Honor. I explained that her petition had no effect on these proceedings. You explained to her that this hearing is Why a matter of law, not a motion. Don't you realize yes, they're going to release a homicide Mrs. Loomis, I'm going to ask you to sit down or I'll have the bailiff remove you from this courtroom. If you have any further questions, please discuss them with the district attorney after this hearing. Why bother? It's all too obvious. Our courts protect the criminals, not their victims. So, Ross, you chose cycle two. Why did you do that? Because it's probably the best horror sequel of all time. I know it's got a lot of competition, but how can you, how can you do a sequel to Psycho? And that's what they done. Richard Franklin, it, it's, what he done there, and Tom Holland, of course, both of them together. Uh, it's just, I, I love the film. I love what they do. To, I love what they do to Norman Bates. I think everyone in that film is crazy apart from him. Uh, everyone's got an agenda apart from him. He's, it's like everyone. It's like the world needs Norman Bates to be crazy. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens for the full of it. And it, I always start with him being sane and I would end with him back as he was in the original Psycho. It's just absolutely brilliant. And I want you a bad word to say about it. So bring it on, guys. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I thought it was a really good film. I, I thoroughly enjoyed re-watching it. I'd, it gets a good kind of balance between being quite a, a sweet film. You know, I think his relationship with Mary brings in a kind of redemption to the whole thing. But at the same time, it's also got these exaggerated kind of campy elements that also work for it, like big sort of dun-dun-dun plot twists. And like, you know, you can dig up a body with an afternoon, <laughs> after an afternoon's request, right? You know, there's weird bits like that where it definitely doesn't take place in our reality. But I think it still, it grounds the characters in something real. You know, it grounds the whole sort of thing in Norman struggling with the ghosts of his past. In fact, uh, it hints for a while that he's literally struggling with ghosts from his past. And I think it does, uh, I think it's a really good sequel. And 22 years later, you know, the absolute balls that it requires to do a a psycho sequel and doing a psycho sequel decades later as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, hats off. But that's that, but that's the strongest part. That's the strongest part of the film. You go when if you watch Psycho and uh, Anthony Perkins looks so young, and all of a sudden Psycho Two starts, and obviously he's aged because you know it's no, he's actually has aged because it's actually twenty two years later. So you actually do believe Red he has served his time in prison. 
And when he comes out and he goes back to the hotel and you just think, oh, in some ways you want him to be, you want him to be okay. Mm. He served his time, you know, and it's just the people around him are horrible people. Everyone around him, apart from Meg Tilly's character, who was sweet and all that. And I think gradually she became to see Norman was sane. But obviously their actions drove him back into his mother's arms in some in a crazy, crazy way. Yeah, like um, with Bates Motel, which I promise I will not mention in every single episode, but I just bloody love it. You know, with Bates Motel, it plays the Norman uh, Norma relationship for tragedy. And well, Norma is obviously depicted as a bit of a boot in the cycle films. At the same time, I like if this really captures the tragedy of uh, of Norman's character. And something I just can't really imagine about this. Now, none of us are old enough to remember this film coming out of the cinema. However, say you were a horror fan and it's, uh, it's 1982. And you see a trailer for the new Psycho film, right? I mean, that would just be crazy, right? You'd be like, what? You know, we're bringing this back? How? Like, it must be... It must be try, trying to uh, fight upwards to be taken from a position of neutrality. Because a, a film that's made 22 years later as a sequel to Psycho, an all-time classic, it shouldn't be as good as it is, you know? It should be like for Birds 2. Well, I suppose you could draw parallels with Doctor Sleep, couldn't you? Because mm. that is a, another brilliant sequel to an absolute all-time classic of the genre. Uh, I mean... I, I personally thought you could probably never touch that with a badge pole. And it is a thankless task bringing a sequel. I mean, you're never going to please everybody. But to make one that good as well, to, a follow-on for such a brilliant film, for it to be that good is just an absolutely amazing feat. I assume that Psycho 2 you're seeing amazing rather than Doctor Sleep you're seeing is amazing. Well, Both. Oh, uh, both, both are brilliant films and <laughs> both are brilliant sequels to films that really shouldn't get a sequel I tell you, I, I don't want to derail this but something I hated about Doctor Sleep when we got the the fight at the end I was scared for the villain going into that fight and that's not a good <laughs> that's not a good nation to be in um, anyway yeah uh, sorry uh, Psycho 2 yes great film I just think I just think everything came together to make Psycho 2 such such brilliant he said you got the director who watched Psycho when he was 12 years of age and it's his favourite horror film of all time and he was, he was such devoted to Alfred Hitchcock's work. But then, of course, you got Tom Holland who ended up making Child's Play and Fright Night who wrote the script as well. Uh, it's originally, it was going to be a made-for-TV movie with Christopher Walken starring because uh, I can't imagine that, Christopher Walken as uh, Norman Bates. But, of course, Anthony Perkins saw the script and it went from made-for-TV to this straight to the cinema and honestly i can't i can't speak highly of it it's just a fantastic film well acted as well i think Anthony perkins is just brilliant in the role was Anthony perkins involvement do you know was that what made it a cinema release yes okay yeah the, uh, universal looked at the psycho 2 book because a year before that the the book by robert block came out have you read the book anyone the psycho Not 2 enough. book it's absolutely it's basically Jay and Silent Bob meets Henry the Seal Killer. You got Norman Bates escaping from a mental asylum and going to Hollywood because they're making a film of his life, killing everyone. And he kills a lot of people. It's not a very good book. There's some very, very questionable scenes on it. Obviously, uh, Universal took one look at the book and said, no thanks. And they actually started writing the script. 
they approached Andy Perkins. He said no. They then went to Chris Wogan. And Perkins had then had a look at the finished script and he loved it. He thought that it was Norman's story, which it is. It's all about him. And it's just brilliant. Honestly, it really is. I thoroughly enjoyed um, Psycho 2 as well. What a solid sequel. Um, and I like how it was a slow burn. And you, it keeps you on your toes as well because you're thinking, you know, the involvement of um, Mrs. Loomis, whether she's... How, how much of these phone calls are actually her because you get this impression that she might not be involved with all of this or would she really go to the lengths of killing somebody just to frame Norman, just to put him back, um, back behind bars or back in a psychiatric hospital. Um, and I liked how it didn't really sort of have any frightening scenes as such. Like it, it played on the... How can I explain? Like when Norman goes into his mother's bedroom and everything's as it was when she was alive. And then he goes obviously back into it later on and it's all been changed back. It's more psychological um, horror, playing with that sort of element that somebody's looking through the hole in the wall. It's only really in the wall in the last 20 minutes that suddenly we get a knife going <laughs> through, um, through somebody's mouth and sort of really, I was like, damn some brilliant scenes towards the end just that completely took me by surprise just because it was so very tame early on in the film um i really enjoyed it so yeah i think this is i think this is going to be our uh, our kind of i think this will be our film of the night basically um with the stuff that i reckon this really gets right it is this sympathetic portrayal of Norman throughout and as uh, Ross is saying that he's the only sane one here, you know, everyone wants him to to revert and in a way it's a bit like a sort of a, a clockwork orange, you know, where you've got uh, Malcolm McDowell's character whose uh, name I've temporarily forgotten is uh, Alex Alex, yes, where, uh, you know, Alex uh, does, does lots of bad things, he is rehabilitated and then he's driven back by the uh, responses of people when he comes out you know, it's saying, well, this is how difficult uh, rehabilitation can be because, you know, if everyone knows the things you've done, people will still treat you as if you've done them, you know? And uh, with Norman Bates here, he's not going to be able to evade the suspicions of the people who talk. I loved, uh, whilst you've got that Toomey guy is obviously a red herring, I love that you do have a bit of hostility that he faces while he's out there. You know, I love that, that people know about the legacy of uh, Psycho. And I also, I wonder if maybe part of a point of a movie was like, it's coming back in the 80s when the slasher movement's taken off and it's like, all right, well, this is the original slasher coming back, you know? You've got bits where the kids go in to decide to fuck in the dead, in the murder house basement at one point. Murder house cellar. Uh, who would do that? But there's just something about uh, that sort of, all right, well, now it's teens stripping off going into the cycle house. It felt like it was saying, this is the state of slasher films. But I tell you what, this is how slasher films started. It's something slightly classier. I think that's a very valid point, though, um, because it, it it did feel like it didn't fit in a way, um, and it just soon put an end to that. Which was, I thought, it was quite good how it didn't let it play out that long. Um, also, I kind of, I kind of see see it through the eyes of um, Mrs. Loomis as well, because I don't think. Mm. I would be too happy if the killer of um, was it was it a sister or sister-in-law? 
sister, I think, because she was a, she was a main character in the first film, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. Viva, Viva Mills, yeah. Layla. Yeah. So I don't think I would be happy either if the, if the killer was released. So I, I don't, I wouldn't have gone to watch the length she did. I wouldn't have even got involved. I'd have just been quietly sat at home, crossing my fingers and probably writing to the local MP. But it was interesting that, you know, she placed a daughter into that situation. And I didn't realise it's uh, Jennifer Tilly's sister. Ah, yes. <laughs> Yeah, a, yes, a face yes, looked yeah, familiar, yeah. but I don't know. I don't think I've seen him in anything else, but um, I just looked up then and it said uh, sister of um, Jennifer, so that, that's yeah, quite that, interesting. Yeah, that, that fits now that you say it, yeah, <laughs> I see that. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought it was quite sweet, you know, how she was trying to keep him on the straight and narrow, really, and try to stop everyone from interfering. Um, I thought she played a really good role there. Once we get the twist that she's trying to entrap Norman, I was like, oh, I did not see that coming. Because the first half, I was going, what does she see in this? Like, she's evidently quite freaked out the first night that she's with him. And he's getting a bit obsessive while he's cutting the sandwich. You're like, oh, that's pretty intense. That's some intense cutting. And um, I was like, is she, you know, because they cover for each other. It's quite nice. You know, they both... Uh, they both provide an alibi for the other at different points of the movie. She's like, oh, he couldn't possibly have uh, have done that. He was with me. When this is for something a lot more serious than her dropping a glass, right? But so when she, it turns out that she's in on it, I was like, oh, that's actually quite a nice little twist. But then I still, there's still enough goodwill in the relationship anyway that uh, as she's kind of wavering, going, you know, maybe we're doing the wrong thing here. Maybe he is actually all right. I just thought it was quite moving. It was a lot more powerful than I thought than I thought uh, than I thought the film was likely to be when it first started. It's that one scene with uh, Meg Tilly when Norman's on the phone, pretend on the on, to, on the phone to his mother, and she picks the phone up and there's no one on that line, and you can just tell by your eyes that she begins to get scared because they think she's going Norman, Norman. It's not mother. Your mother's dead, Norman. Mm. And Anthony Perkins' eyes is acting. It's all there. You can see it. You can see his mind breaking. You know, he's, he's becoming, well, Norman Bates, the Norman we know. And you can just see the fear at the moment in Meg Tilly's eyes, which is, I think, is just fantastic. Both of them played the performance really well. Ross, you prefer this film to the first one, don't you? Yes, I'm with Quentin Tarantino. Cool. It's good company. I'm not, don't take nothing away from Psycho. I mean, Psycho is one of the most influential slasher films of all time. I know people say it's, the, it's probably the first, which is not, by the way, it's Peeping Tom. I have to put that across. But, uh, you know, this shouldn't be this good. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we've got really good all the sequels out there. Scream 2, you know, is, is up there. But as you quite rightly said earlier, this is a film that was 22 years later on. It shouldn't have worked, and they just nailed it. Uh, even the, you know, and it set it sets up a third so perfectly. I know you got issues with the ending, haven't you, David? Yeah, the plot twist. Uh, that, I thought that was a twist too far for me. The bit where, like, the bit where I suppose we've already done spoilers. The bit where Mary gets shot, I thought was brilliant, and. When we've got the cafe owner, she comes back in and goes like, oh, by the way, I'm actually your mum, right? I just didn't think it was necessary. I thought that kind of detracts from the like the, 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 the mother-son relationship that's come to define the whole movie. I mean, I guess it doesn't really, it doesn't really do anything for me, that reveal. 
Like, did you guys agree, or do you guys were you guys fans of it? But but if you if you can remember Psycho Three, or they actually change it back, it's revealed that uh, she lied. She's not actually is the mother. That she's just as damaged as Norman. Yeah, because she's meant because she she admits that she's um, got mental health issues, doesn't she? Which yes, in, in that end scene where she sat at the table, which I don't know. It just kind of I'm I'm with David here. It just kind of just came out of nowhere. Oh, I am your mum. I give you up. Now that could be plausible. I give you up because I was young and let my sister um, bring you up. But then it was kind of like, oh, yeah, and then, you know, I got locked away in a psychiatric hospital. It was like, it was, to me, it then blamed that Norman's condition. It wasn't because of his upbringing, was because of, like, an hereditary mental illness DNA type of issue. Do you, do you know where I'm coming from with that? And I just, I first yeah, thought yeah. that was unnecessary. Um, maybe, maybe the idea that he was brought up by um, his auntie, who was bitch, that caused him to be like how he was. I, I could, that was fine, even though I, I felt like he, he didn't need to be, I suppose, adopted in the first place, if you know what I mean. She, she didn't really need, it, it didn't mm-hmm. really need to go there. I think, like David said, it could have ended with uh, Mary getting killed. But then you wouldn't have that iconic scene in where after he's killed, uh, Emma is supposed to be real mother. And then obviously then he's coming upstairs and then you can hear mother's voice for the first time in the film. I, that is just so creepy. As soon as he's walking up and she goes, hello, no man, put me in the mirror, son, you know, and mirror, put me in the chair, son, let me look out. I just think that's fantastic. And it sets up Psycho 3 brilliantly. And of course then, which Norman, which are, sorry, Anthony Perkins uh, directed himself and yeah, they changed the twi- they changed that twist. It's actually revealed that Emma actually lied about that, and she's actually just as nuts as Norman is. And right. it's, yes, I've not seen the third one to be honest. So you could still have that ending though, because with Mary dead, then like the kind of the good thing in his life, his relationship is over, and that could be what tips him. You know, I think you could you still could have had him going up the stairs like. You know, face me to the window, Norman. You could still could have done that, just without having the uh, scene with. All right, by the way, I'm actually your ma. She isn't, right? Um, yeah, I think you could, I, I agree that was a really good final scene. Uh, but it's interesting that uh, Perkins presumably had the creative control to just to have kept that bit in, and he chose not to. Yeah. So I reckon he must have thought that was a misstep as well, because it kind of takes away some of the uh, some of the lore. I remember the third one's a bit more of a straight slasher film, isn't it? Yeah, obviously he's Norman Bates, the killer. That's no spoiler there because he's fully deranged. But it's a good, it's a good heart to it as well. It's, it's yeah, it's a few slasher moments, but I call him more of a drama in some strange, bizarre way. And at the end, it's quite bittersweet as well. Norman actually finds redemption at the end. Hmm. You know, it's it's, it's a really it's a really good ending to it. Obviously, if you want to count Psycho Four, which is virtually Bates Mattel in a different form. But uh, yeah, to me, the Psycho franchise finished in Psycho Three. Yeah, Psycho Four. I remember the um, some of the incestuous scenes in it, uh, which yeah, yeah f- fair enough, has always been part of part of the sort of mythology of it. Um, I was surprised by how overt it played them for, like you know, Bates Motel, where we'll have uh, odd scenes of them flirting. But you also get the feeling that they never, they, they would never go further with that. 
And yeah. in that one, you know, he gets a full on hard on while him and his ma are rolling around on the floor. Um, it's Mick Garris who I, who I believe wrote that one. I don't think I've seen anything by Mick Garris that I particularly enjoyed. It's good. She's uh, there's Olivia Hussey plays Norma Bates in that film, and she's really good. She's a really good performance. She's just as creepy as well, and that's probably the most memorable performance of the film. But it ignores parts two and three, doesn't it? And uh, it's like a carry-on from Psycho One. He's just been released. He's always in the shield, and yeah, it's, it's quite a bland, boring film. I gotta be honest, though. Nothing much happens in it. If um, if something go to, except for my issue with the ending. Is there anything about this film that any of us dislike? No. <laughs> no, I, I thought it was very, very good. Um, I, I was genuinely surprised at how good it was. I dismissed it as a cash-in, similar to, like, you've got your Jaws sequels, numerous other slasher films have got loads of shit sequels. But this one genuinely astonished me, I suppose. I mean, I think I'm almost siding with Ross on this and saying that it's probably as good if not better than the original and i myself enjoyed that silly ending as well it's it already been tipped over and then when his new mother appears he's just like you know fuck it smacks <laughs> her over the head with a shovel i'm back <laughs> i thought i was very i, I probably was very cheered ending. at that scene as well jim and <laughs> yeah go on reach yeah. for it reach that spade go on <laughs> yeah yeah, I, I thought it was great. And it, again, as I said earlier, it, there's probably weight on the director's shoulders. You know, it's it's a thankless task because you're, you're always going to have someone, you know, getting you down about it because of what it is. But just it's gen, generally a great looking film as well. It's, it's, it's a great little style. He doesn't try and mimic Hitchcock in any way whatsoever. Because, you know, you can't, can you, really? Um, you're just going to be accused of trying to rip him off. But there was loads of great little angles and shots here and there that I was really intrigued about. And certain what the way certain rooms were shot, almost as if it was like a, a diorama of room, like, like the little guest bedroom. That was really interesting, I found. Um, and yeah, just he put his own stamp on it, which I thought was really good. I would totally agree with the visual style. I do think there was quite a few conscious callbacks to the um, to the original. Some of the some of the shots that they used of the Bates Motel, some of the framing of like you know him hovering on the stairs in front of it, um, the face in the window, like we got in the original. But uh, yeah, I agree. It's very, it's got its own vibe. You know, it feels like. Uh, it feels like a good extension of the original one too. Um, yeah, you know, really, really impressive. Very, very good. I'm, very, I'm glad you chose it, Ross. Thank you for, thank you for having us watch it again. I'm glad you liked it all. One uh, minor issue I had with the terminology, and this isn't about this film. I suppose it's about the wider series. Norman Bates is not a psychopath. Norman Bates has effective empathy. He feels for other people. And in this film, he feels for Mary, and uh, he obviously has emotional investment in his mother as well. He's also not callously killing people. He doesn't want to kill people. He thinks he's following the orders of his mum. So he would absolutely not score high in the psychopath inventory test. That's one minor issue. What he has is some form of paranoid schizophrenia. Um, if I were to be diagnosing him, which I'm not qualified to do, but he he's not a psychopath. He's our lovable Norman. 
Yeah, I mean, from the film, I think um, Psycho 2, I think, displays that more. Um, and I think it really does well at showing him that he's sort of a product of his surroundings and mm. and then the way, the way he's played in the second one. You know, the reason he cracks up is because he's pushed to it. Um, I think... Um, I think that probably gives a, a good portrayal of um, probably mental illness a bit, um, which we don't really get to see much in films. You know, I would say that horror films on the whole uh, do quite a good job of exploring mental health issues. More recently, it's come up in a heck of a lot of movies and you've got your sort of modern domestic horrors where it's mental illness metaphors. You know, oh, is it a demon or is it mental illness? And we've had had that come up a few times. You know, things like The Babadook, it's very explicit and you know, hereditary, it's uh, very explicit. In. And uh, I think it's good with horror movies that, uh, you know, they speak, they tend to speak to an outsider community anyway. And I like that horror movies will often, um, sometimes slightly debase the topic. I'm thinking of... Uh, uh, Lights Out, for instance, one of several films where, which I won't reveal the others for, but this is an old enough one to say this about, uh, one of several films where a person essentially wins by killing himself, and you go, ah, that's not good. But at the same time, I do think that as a genre, horror is relatively, relatively uh, respectable mental health issues. It's probably quite a good place to explore them because, you know, a lot of the time horror films are are doing human drama in quite extreme circumstances. I think there's a film that has been forgotten by the masses that displays mental illness really well, and that's Raising Kane with John Lithgow. Yeah, that's uh, good. That is just a, that's a fantastic film. It's got shades of Psycho in it as well. It's like a most, mostly like a Psycho homage, but it's it's a really good film. And if any of our listeners want to seek that out, I totally recommend it. Oh, that was a that was a brilliant film. Uh, that was uh, when I first saw that. I only knew John Lithgow as the dad from Third Rock from the Sun and the dad from uh, Bigfoot and the Henderson. So I was like, fuck, he's, he's, he's great yeah. at this. Yeah. Well, I, I think of him as Trinity now in Dexter. Mm-hmm. He's, 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 he's just, uh, he was so good in that performance. He, deserves, he deserved all the awards coming. He was fantastic as the serial killer. He was. Uh, folks, I've poured myself a wee dram of whiskey and the reason I have done it's because we're about to go to Silent Hill. So let's get ready. To, uh... Hang on, let me pour mine. <laughs> so let's get us. I'm making a let's triple. Get ready for Silent Hill revelation. Why me? It is your destiny. You have been chosen many years ago to be the vessel. The God can only be born through your flesh. And then we will be free from this prison. To cleanse the world of its sins. And all we need is your body. Uh, no! You leave her alone! You have the seal of Metatron. So, Jim, why did you make us watch this? I'm not going to pretend that I think it's a brilliant film by any stretch, but the theme of this episode is sequels. I thought I would steer things in a little different direction. I mean, they could have quite easily gone down the route of Elm Street, one of the numerous slasher sequels, or 
pretty much anything else that everyone's already talked about. It may just be a bit of a coincidence that I've been playing Silent Hill 2 recently. And I actually quite like Silent Hill Revelation for what it tries to do. Uh, I, f- I find it a very faithful adaptation of a great series of games. I think one thing it definitely does is it gets the iconography of the games approximately right. I mean, when I was... Uh, I-, I used to play the, the games. I played uh, 2, 3, 4, and uh, I think it was the one where you go a military guy came out of the Xbox 360. I think Can't remember that his name. was Homecoming. Homecoming, yeah. yeah. So I, 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 I like Silent Hill, and I thought the first film was quite good as well. With this one, ah, oh God, it just... <laughs> it, it watched like someone walked in on their flatmate playing the game a few times. They were quite baked when they did it. Walk in, go, oh, let's watch for 20 minutes and play based upon <laughs> what they remembered happening in the game. Like, it had enough things you can go, I recognise this is Silent Hill. But, oh, God, absolutely incomprehensible <laughs> points. Like, there, was a, there wasn't, like, a next. It was just more, you know, like, our... <laughs> you, absolutely. I agree with you there, David. I, I liked the first half. And for the first half of the movie, I was going, I don't see why everyone thinks this is shit. Then the second half started, I went, oh, Stephanie Ross, what do you guys think of this one? Um... I remember at the time um, I went interviewing Sean Bean for Horror Cult Films um, about the film, and I think I think initially he hadn't see he hadn't played any of the games. I don't think he he had. You'll just have to check my interview. Um, but I believe that his kids told him about it and showed him. He was quite interested, and it turns out you know he, he's quite a horror film fan. Um, he likes the Edgar Allan Poe stuff, um, Fall of the House of Usher, and things like that. Quite excited going to watch the film after I'd, I'd interviewed him. And I, I enjoyed the first film and I enjoyed the games which I had played, which was a bit of the first one and quite a lot of the second game. But I just found it a mess. I found it hard to understand what was going on. And like David said, it was just more of something, Le- you know, less narrative and just more scenes. Um, I, Kit Harrington didn't really do anything for me. Um, his character it just and like the whole pyramid head thing of him sort of turning to a good guy I just didn't buy and and Carrie Ann Moss you know I, re- I think she's a really great actress but mm. that was like a she turned into like a Cenobite really didn't she um it just didn't do anything for me I can't I can't really say I enjoyed it I'm afraid but the first one yeah. I really enjoyed and I, I love it when it changes you know into the other world or the other dimension or however you want to call it. Um, I love all that, but yeah, it just didn't do anything for me, I'm afraid. Something you touch upon there is you've got, so you've got Kit Harrington, Sean Bean, Carrie Ann Moss, you've got, and Malcolm McDowell, right? So you've got quite a good cast. I think what this movie shows is, you know, a, a good cast are capable of giving quite bad performances. I think Sean Bean in particular, his constant fighting with his English accent, which he was barely suppressing at points. Uh, I don't know. It, I, I was like, his heart didn't seem in it. Malcolm McDowell, I think, was just there for a paycheck. You know, he's kind of like the uh, Danny Trejo of uh, horror movies. You know, he just show up for cameo roles in something and uh, 
you know, he's bless him. I hope he continues to do so. But I, 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 he didn't look. He didn't look like he was into it. He seemed bored. I, I loved that Malcolm McDowell was. He, he seemed into. I mean, he, he could probably do it, but he, he seemed to really fesp that little bit he had right up. Uh, and as you say, it's probably just to get that year's Christmas presents in, really. <laughs> but I, 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 he just really seemed to just relish that little party. Probably just because it's playing something really absurd and turns into a monster, doesn't he? And it, it was just really silly. He was better than this film than he was as Dr. Loomis, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Russ, what were, what were your overall thoughts on, on Silent Hill Revelation? Oh, <laughs> right. These are the notes I made when I was watching. Please make it stop. Please, please. My eyes, my eyes. The pain, please. Has it finished yet? Trust me, right? The reason why it's called Silent Hill Revelation because it's shit. That's the revelation. <laughs> Now, Silent Hill, right, was, is, is one of the most influential video games of all time. It's up there with the Resident Evils, right? This film made it feel like it was a click and collect floppy disk game for an old Amstrad. Honestly, you had Heather going from A to B. That's what it was. She walks from <laughs> A to B with shadowy things going, boo, boo, boo. Right? It's like an old, it's like a 90s episode a bad 90s episode of Goosebumps, crossed with Hairraiser, directed by Uwe Boyle. It's like the scary section of Adam Tussauds, yeah. and you go like, here's a corridor. You go down the corridor, you look to your left, oh, something's happening. You look to your right, oh, something's happening. And it's just, a, 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 you just walk on. Like, you know, it's just another little exhibit to see. And you look at it for five seconds, you process it, and you just carry on going. It's just not... Uh, like a tight, a tight, cohesive piece. Look at the character Heather Mason. Now, I think Jim will tell you because he's the, he's the gamer. In the game, she's strong-willed, she's got a tough personality, and she actually kicks ass. In this film, all she does is, oh, help me, help me. Now, it's gone on record, the writers said they've done this on purpose because they wanted it to relate to the audience. Have they seen an alien film with Ripley? Do they know how a film works? I mean, she falls in love with Kit Harrington. <laughs> they only spend 10 minutes together. It's a director meeting. Like, it, 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 is she meaning um, that the audience will feel scared if ever is visibly scared? Is that, is that the idea? Well, uh, yeah, but I felt, I, I, felt scared, I felt scared of Ripley and Alien. You know, I, I just, it's, it's like the film set, set women backwards because the soldier did was screaming dark corridors. And then people who were good were bad, they were good again. And I was thinking, oh my God, I've got an headache. <laughs> I, 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 I think you're probably overplaying that a little bit. I, I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, you, you are going to shit it when you see a giant mannequin tarantula for a start. Even though it didn't look that great, it was still pretty terrifying. Um, I mean, it was filmed for the 3D gimmick, so there was going to be a fair few things being a bit ropey. I mean, like when that guy gets his fingers cut off, for example, they just happened to fly at the screen. And a fair few stabby bits and pointy objects come forwards as well, and it just looks a bit naff. But I think the overall tone is pretty cracking. 
I mean, it captures the, the game's aesthetic and feel and sound perfectly for me. But then that might be where the problem is because it's, you know, games and films aren't the same thing. And it's great that you see that you see someone, oh, here's a lead pipe, I can batter something now. And they've got their little memos and documents that they've picked up while they're on the way with their little like bits of information to get to the next stage. But uh, as I guess, does she actually use for the lead pipe? Because I remember her picking up the lead pipe, and I was like, "Yes!" I don't think she actually hits anything uh, with it. No, I think this is where we pander to Ross again, and she runs away. So. <laughs> Do you know what? Ross has got a very valid point, um, and I think this is a problem throughout film. To be honest, I think a lot of films haven't got well-written characters for women because you can have a female character that isn't like. I, th- you, I can have one that needs saving or is the one that does the saving. I think you've got to have, you can have both. I don't think you should have one that, um, like, I think at, at the moment, I think we're going too far one way where it's the woman who's kicking ass and knocking out all the men. That's not realistic in, in many terms. I think we just need realistic women. We can be cunning, we can be bitches, we can probably screw over people business-wise as much as men can. And... I'll just say this, it's because I'm watching a lot of Emmerdale at the minute. Now, don't slag me off. <laughs> we'll have our own uh, spin-off called, uh, called called Soap Cult Films coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't normally watch films, but you know, I don't normally watch uh, soap operas, but I've just been catching a bit of that. And, <laughs> you know, it's locked down. This is what we do. We end up watching TV. I've been wearing, uh, I've been wearing masks in Emmerdale nowadays. I hear in Corey... They're getting a bit of shit because the characters take their masks off when they're talking, but they, they keep them on when they're by themselves. Oh, yes. What happens is they walk into, like, the, the pub. So the pubs are open. Obviously, this must have been shot, you know, when um, when they were allowed to be. Well, they've not been open for bloody ages. So, great. Anyway, it's Emma Dale. It doesn't matter. But, yeah, so they'll walk into a shop or something or a business with the mask on. They'll see a neighbour. I mean, it's a small village, is Emma Dale, so, you know, they probably will know everybody anyway. And they'll go, oh, hello, remove the mask and start talking. Go in for the hug. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they don't do that. They don't actually go in for the hug or anything, but it's funny that they walk in with the mask and as soon as they're inside, then they take it off. Mm. Uh, let's get back to Silent Hill too. <laughs> I know. Jim, Jim, Silent Hill is so bad, we end up talking about Emmerdale. <laughs> <laughs> Just go back to what Steph said. I... You can have a, a lady, a woman, whatever, you know, in peril and she, she can be scared. I'm not saying that. But you've got to have some character development. And there was nothing with Heather. I don't think she done anything in that movie. Yeah, I think the, the only real development with her character was the origin and purpose, basically. There's yeah. nothing really character-defining about it. And I would say there's, there's more in the supporting cast that we get to see them develop than in what Steph said. If you ask my wife if she would be interested in Kit Harrington after being with him for about 10 minutes, I can assure you that she would. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was uh, definitely uh, a fan of Jon Snow in Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> they, they fall in love so quickly in the film, though. Like, you know, there's a... It's like the... Have like there one or two scenes, you know, bit of school, then bit, but then a uh, bit when he sees her outside the building, and then he's like, you know, oh, you know, I, 
I was meant to betray you, but I couldn't. And <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I can, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to defend it. And I can only assume maybe there's a bit of it on the cutting room floor, maybe some more of their relationship evolving. But I imagine they're trying to play it from these are the two outcasts. I mean, it's obvious that he's there as a plant. I mean, it's too much of a coincidence that they're both starting in the same school on the very same day after she's being followed and having these creepy dreams. I mean, I, I picked that up straight away that he was, you know, up to something. I legit didn't. <laughs> uh, Ross and Steph, did you, guys, did you guys pick up on that immediately? Because I, I genuinely didn't. Well, in the in the game, Vincent's a creepy character. Is that right, Jim? He's older than he. I can't remember if I'm honest. It's been a long. I think this is mainly yeah, based it, on Silent Hill Three, isn't it? Which I haven't played for. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. They totally can all Silent Hill Two. Yeah, yeah. I think Vincent, if I can remember, is a very creepy character. He's an, he's quite an oldish. I mean, there's no love interest there whatsoever. But Kit Harton walks in like he's just come off from Twilight. <laughs> I got to be honest there, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's got that vibe. But yeah, I, I just, I just, I just, it was just. It's made by people who just didn't understand the material. And I know that's harsh. And, you know, you got to give people credit for making films. But if you're going to make a sign of deal film, you, you've got to know. You've got to know what you're making. You know, you've got to know what you're creating. Otherwise, well, I'd actually, where I kind of disagree with you on that is... Uh, actually, sorry, I'll let, I'll let Jim disagree with you first. Well, I was just going to tread that old ground of... It does feel like they have done a great job of adapting the look and feel of the games but as a film it just it, it runs out of steam I, I agree in that the first half is very interesting and i really got into it and the first time i watched it i was quite amazed at how faithful an adaptation it was but then yeah it does you kind of just descend into your gimmicky 3d horror nasties jumping out of the screen at you and then it ends <laughs> i don't think the 3d if i'm going to 3d glasses now it makes the film look even oh, yeah, worse. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Because it makes it, yeah, the, some of the CGI you made, it made the Scorpion King feel like Avatar. <laughs> i got to be honest with you. That's how bad, that's how bad the CGI was in some places. But like, then you can't you can't fault the film for that because it was purposely made when 3D was a massive fad in the cinema. I reckon something um, the, the first film did well is the first movie streamlined a lot of the video, video game lore. You know, the first one, we're going, all right, Girl who gets picked on, her rage creates Silent Hill. In this one, we're going, okay, we've got lots of different influences going on here. We've got evil cults, we've got this mysterious mining accident, it's built in an Indian burial ground, there's a demonic child, there's witchcraft, and there's an alternative dimension. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and then they're like, oh, and now the, the demon child's been split into two parts, you represent her good side. And there's a lot of the exposition dumps. And Honestly, I would have just liked it if you remember when they got the other girl who's there for one scene, right? And then she dies almost straight away. I'd have liked it if we just had a story more like her. She's, yeah, got lost, ended up here. Cool. Yeah, I think I think what they've done is they've tried to shoehorn in too many of these subplots from across the board of the games, because each one of those, I believe, is taken from each of the different ones. Although interesting, you mentioned about the um, coal fire. Uh, that's actually one of the inspirations for the games in general because it's actually a thing in oh, a wow. town called Centralia in Pennsylvania. Uh, since 1962, a coal mine there has been burning and the town is uninhabitable, which 
uh, I believe did inspire the original Silent Hill, which then went on to form some of the lore in the rest of the games and obviously is mentioned in the film as well. Before we go on to the good bits of the movie, and I do want to have a bit of positive view on it, um, I'd like to do a couple of uh, sort of what-the-fuck moments, just moments that just jumped out at you. Like, for instance, jumps out at you like a Pop-Tart. That Pop-Tart jumps <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> it was kind of brilliant in a way. Um, so I was wondering... Uh, Jim, you'll probably know you'll know this better than me here, especially because you're playing it recently. Is the imagery in the game always as sexual as it is in the film? Uh, yes, <laughs> especially when you oh. encounter Pyramid Head the first couple of times. You you walk through a door and he's doing something with these creepy mannequins, and I want to pretend he, I'm a little more innocent than I am and say, I don't know what he looked like he was doing with them, but I can tell you it's probably been in a lot of adult films. But it's, yeah, it's very suggestive. Whether that's intentional or not, again, could be another thing, but there is more than one occasion you walk in on him doing something. With I Matt. remember that as well. <laughs> I think I think the first, in um, Sound Hill 2, I saw him um, behind, like, like a grill door at first, like it was like bars. And then you walk into that room a bit later on. Yeah. And he's got mannequin bent over. Yeah. Kitchen yeah, worktop, yeah. Bloody screwing. I'll say it. Screwing this mannequin. <laughs> and then I think I went and hid yeah. in the wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's pretty early on in the game. And then you, you, you encounter him again and he's got a couple with him this time. So he's, <laughs> he's into a few things. Nage with his mannequin. <laughs> And then you've obviously got the uh, overly kinky nurses towards the end of the film with their, I, I, I assume they got their nurse uniforms from a costume shop on eBay rather than the uh, local <laughs> health service. That scene of the nurses, the nurses look pretty cool. I'll give them that. Vincent and, uh, uh, and uh, what's her face? Heather, right? Vincent and Heather, all they've got to do is shut the fuck up during that scene. You know, he's like trampling around like a like a bull in a china shop, and you're like, no, just do what you're doing, but do it slowly. You know, go slower; they won't hear you as much. But right, reason I asked a sexual question because Pyramid Head, who I'm about to get to, why he's probably the weakest thing in the movie. Something that really amused me is at the beginning, where he's uh, turning the carousel and he's got these nipple, nipple clamps on. For some reason. <laughs> It's like, are these, are these powering variety? Like, like I, I just love the idea of him, like, you know, getting into position to turn this, uh, this like, little lever thing and just clamping these on himself just for his own entertainment. It was, it was great. Yeah, there is a lot of imagery in the games where there are, it's just background, like, pre-rendered stuff, especially in the first one, where it's, you've got, I don't know if there'd be ornaments or dead souls that sort of thing and they are strung up with chains and that sort of thing so i think they're kind of going for a bit of a hellraiser vibe with that but it's definitely a sort of snm vibe coming from him like when he's, he's the carousel he's got that weird hand cycle thing where it's spinning around it looks more like a organ grinder than anything else it's it's it kind of takes away any intimidating presence that the, the character had it just <laughs> looks absolutely ridiculous i reckon the worst thing about pyramid heads right is they're going all right he's like the guardian angel in this 
So we get two problems with this. Firstly, if he's a guardian angel, he's a pretty shit guardian angel because he kills indiscriminately throughout <laughs> the course of the movie. Right? And we've already seen him kill indiscriminately in the first one. So he's a he's bad at being a guardian angel. He's not good. Right? He's just, like just going into the corridor, cutting everyone's arms off for the sheer hell of it, right? You know, they're behind bars. They can't possibly hurt Heather. And he's like, no chop, right? And uh, the other reason the Pyramid Head was so shit in this, me and my friends have this uh, concept of Bennett syndrome, right? Comes from the movie Commando. Where Bennett is a bad guy who you'd never believe for a moment could be the good guy. You know, you've got this... Uh, overweight camp Aussie and chainmail who you're meant to think is going to batter Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? It just isn't going to happen, right? And um, in this one, when Pyramid Head goes in for the fight at the end, he's the clear favourite. Like, all right, so you've got uh, the woman who's a uh, sort of demon name. I can't remember what her demon name is. And I don't want to watch it again to find out. But uh, you've, got, you've got her going, all right, uh, yes, uh, I've been the killer all along, right? Pyramid Head comes in with this absolutely humongous instrument he's yielding. And then they proceed to fight and you go, well, of course Pyramid Head's going to batter her here. He's like twice the size. Um, you know, he, he, he puts himself in painful positions just for joy and he's got a massive steel like helmet on here, right? You know, he's not good. He's, he's going to come out of this unscathed. And then what do you know? He bloody well does. I don't know. I just thought that was shit. I want to see it. I want to see the goodies up against the odds by the end. Like with uh, Doctor Sleep, you shouldn't feel scared yeah. for the body. Yeah, it, it, it did feel like a bit of a cop-out at the end, I'm, I must admit. I, as I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm not saying this is a brilliant film by any stretch, but as far as video game adaptations go, this is up there with some of the better ones, that's for sure. But the, the ending, by, by that point, you're just like, yeah, you can get to the credits now, please. But I, 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 did, I did pick up that it, it seems to me, in the films at least, that Silent Hill is dependent on the visitor. Each person has their own experience in Silent Hill, and this film in particular was focused on Heather as opposed to Sean Bean's character or anyone else. And, and as you see from them walking away at the end, they hitch a ride in the truck. You see the police cars coming the opposite direction, the camera swoops around, and all of a sudden you've got fog and ash falling from the sky again which I thought was a neat little touch. I thought that closed it off quite well and, you know, was a bit of a better end than that stupid clash between the crappy CGI monsters. And I, I think that's probably me trying to sugarcoat it. <laughs> yeah, because Malcolm McDowell has a bit where he says there's many silent hills, words to that effect. So, yeah, I suppose Please that... no, please no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, folks, I reckon because um, we've given uh, Jim's f- favourite film uh, a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, a seeing to here, let's uh, let's say some positive things about Silent Hill Revelation. So, what do you guys like about it? And I said except, the end. Except in short running time. Credits. <laughs> yeah, credits. <laughs> I mean, I always like a bit of Pyramid Head, but I didn't like the turn in that. Um... Haven't they, hasn't, has he been hitting the weights or the steroids or something? Because I'm sure in the game he's quite lean. I mean, he's probably got a bit of muscle for carry that, you know, big long sword, but, and for, you know, for carry a bloody triangle on his head, you know what I mean? Uh- <laughs> yeah, well, in, in the game, he, he is a lot smaller. They, they have 
proper roided him up for the film and he, he does struggle carrying that massive knife as well like he's very different i think they've tried to make it a bit more of an intimidating presence for the film but failed by doing whatever they're doing i think they know the first is real with pyramid head he has a army of like fangirls and probably fanboys i think find that yeah. character <laughs> quite delicious i'm not saying i'm one of them but yes i am <laughs> he is probably one of the more sexier bad guys but he's a good guy and that's the turn off <laughs> well, something i thought was unintentionally funny that i, that I should uh, should mention right uh, vincent in it right there's a couple of unintentionally funny bits of him the bit where he reveals, ah, yes, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually a son of the cultists, right? And you got this really uh, imprecise bit where he goes, oh, uh, yeah, I can leave for a while. It's like, how long is a while in this scenario? <laughs> Reminds me of a few uh, years back when my mates had a copy of Jungle Holocaust on DVD. It was not an official version of it. Because the back of the DVD describes the plot of the movie. It says that the woman is uh, tossed into a hole with a bird for a while. And uh, that, just, <laughs> that just reminded me of that. Um, I thought, oh, yeah, that's true. Um, and the other amusing bit with him is when they're going into the carnival bit. And just before then, she's saying, like, how can you stand being here? And he goes, it's all I've ever known, right? I just got this thought in my head of, I wonder what you do for your spare time when you live in Silent Hill. <laughs> yeah, you know what, actually, that did occur to me as well. Like, Because when you're playing the games, it, it seems to me like the people you encounter on the other side, I suppose, you know, where you've had all the sirens, everything goes a manky brown, and then you encounter these people. Like, Obviously, they're there to fuck with your head, basically. There's nothing further to it. But here they've established that it is a town where people live and obviously they can come and go if they've been granted the right. But yeah, like, do, do, do they, yeah, <laughs> it makes snowmen out of the ash. Yeah. St stab things. <laughs> go to your local supermarket. <laughs> they probably I mean, play in Resident Evil. <laughs> but like, you know, Vincent's, uh, Vincent's re reasonably built guy, you know, he's, he looks like he looks after himself. I just don't get what he does for his spare time. Like, oh yeah, I go to the carnival every so often. <laughs> you know, Fermat head gets his nipple clamps on, and you can get a good, you can you can get a good ride in the carousel. Good object, like, probably. I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. And you get set on fire with the mannequins. <laughs> and, and like so many prisoners there when they go a bit of a walking past the cell, you've got all these people behind bars, right? Now, I assume, don't be wrong, I don't imagine they have like a proper uh, legal system in Silent Hill. But that, but that implies either a lot of people have visited uh, and just been, prison, been imprisoned rather than killed, or, uh, you know, they have, a, they have some sort of a police force. And, like, you know, you just think, oh, all right, living in Silent Hill would be bad. <laughs> imagine how shit it would be being in jail in Silent Hill. What could you possibly do in Silent Hill to go to jail? Be good? Yeah, that's must be the answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, a, a plus point for the game, right? A plus, one plus point for the game. I quite liked the first half when she's reading the uh, documents and you're giving all the background just like in the game, and she's on her way to Silent Hill. They've got a bit of a driving through the night. You know, you've got your 
scary, dark, stormy night. You have your dark, scary motel and stuff. And some of the bits where the other world leaks into that world, they're all right. The twist about her, I guess, explains that. However, the journey to Silent Hill just seems to get stopped like that when she just wakes up there. You know, she's in, she goes from a motel and suddenly appears in Silent Hill and that for me is when the movie really went downhill. The journey element was just mm. taken away. There's no reason to travel at all in the first place to get to Silent Hill if you're thinking yeah. to teleport the rest of the way. <laughs> 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 I don't know. It, just, it baffled me. I thought we are going to get like a nice little road movie and then, ah, the road movie bit's over. She's just there. Oh, oh, and when the bit where Vincent hears her screaming, right? Because she's in the house and she goes, ah, right? And has one of her many screams. And Vincent goes, runs in and goes, I heard you. Like, okay. Did Vincent, Vincent would have had to, and we know because of the twist that he would do this. Vincent would have had to follow her to the house and be right up against the door. Because when she leaves him, they're in a big square. And she wanders yeah. off for quite a wee while together. He shouldn't have heard that um, unless he unless he was hovering right outside the window, right outside the door, like you know he's got his wanker's breath as he looks at the keyhole, like, <laughs> as he um, as he pl- as he plans to, like to find any excuse to go inside. It just yeah, I thought I thought that bit was brilliant too. Um, so uh, by the way, I had a good time watching this. I'm slagging it off. I- I'm actually really happy that we saw it because. I am so glad for you. <laughs> you don't just want to be watching films that are good. You know, people went, "Ah, oh, yeah, the Horror Girl Films podcast." They like everything. You know, they talk about how good how good Damien is. They talk about how good Psycho Two is. Oh, and then we did then we did like a a really decent decent uh, uh, sequel, like I don't know, Elm Street Three. Yeah, I like we did. Fuck it, I like we did Silent Hill Part Two. <laughs> Well done, Jim. <laughs> yeah, see, I thought it'd be something a bit different. But to, to bring it back into the, the film, I did quite enjoy the music, but that's because it is actually uh, co-scored by the games composer, uh, Akira Yamaoko. And there's a really nice haunting piano bit that you hear a lot throughout the second game that plays over the ending of the film and I thought that was a really nice touch that they actually brought in people that worked on the game to work on the film as well but I think maybe my enjoyment of the game series filled in a lot of the inconsistencies for this one because my mind's saying oh that happens away from this so anyone who's gone into this and I know all of you have played it but you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who have only seen the films. They're probably sat there thinking, what the fuck is this? But, um, you know, I think because I'm such a big fan of the series, my mind's kind of filled in a lot of those blanks that have been left or terrible bits of dialogue and things that are left unsaid. And my brain's obviously piecing that together. So that's probably why I enjoy it a bit more, is my imagination also takes me away with it a little bit as well, I think. Uh, folks, uh, Ross, Steph, you guys got anything, anything extra positive to say about yeah, this? Yeah, I thought Psycho 2 was a fantastic film. <laughs> you know what? Whilst we're back on the subject of that as well, Jerry Goldsmith did the score for that one too. And, uh, you know, a legend. Yeah. There's the scene in the bathroom, and there's a really haunting piano piece. Yeah. And that sounds exactly like the library out of Resident Evil 2. And as soon as Mary walks out the bathroom, 
we hear Norman Bates playing the Moonlight Sonata on the piano. Yeah. And that was in Resident Evil mm. 1. Was it? It's part of one of the puzzles. And that blew my mind at that point. I was like, wow, that well, can't be a wow. coincidence, can it? No, it can't, it can't be, no. Yeah, learn something, learn, learn, learn something cool about, uh, about video games all the time in this year. <laughs> I wouldn't mind to see um, Silent Hill 2 put to screen. You know, the video game. Like, the story in that. The, I would say there's a lot of unfilmable bits in that. But, uh, as I say, I'm playing through it at the moment, and there's a lot of just absolute weird nonsense happening and <laughs> a lot of running around, I suppose, <laughs> to and fro. And so, and it is- Sounds familiar. I yeah, yeah. I, I think we've peaked. <laughs> I think this is part of, the, uh, part of the problem with the format for it. With a lot of video games... I'm thinking things like Bioshock here, but Silent Hill did this as well, and so did Resident Evils, where you know you can piece together some of the background information from like uh, you find like a log or something somewhere, and uh, someone's just explaining part of the context for the villains. But you don't have to do that. And I think for the movie, there was such a lot of lore that you figure out over like a twelve-hour yeah. campaign that they're trying to fit into a ninety-minute mm. narrative, and it was it was that's why I thought sort of the streamlined approach of the first one, and I really did think the first one was pretty good. I think a streamlined approach of it uh, worked very much in its favour for that reason. It's um, I see for doing a movie now of the uh, TV series, sorry, of The Last of Us. Yes, yeah. yes. Looks... And now being uh, it's now being cast as well. Uh, so that because uh, it's obviously the announcement is a, a dude from uh, Mandalorians. Uh, Pedro, yeah. Pedro Pascal. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that makes me slightly apprehensive about that as a TV series, I hope that it takes place between games one and two. Because the storytelling in game one, and also with the second, the storytelling is so immersive and you feel like you're part of it, that I just reckon seeing a less immersive thing that you watch more passively, I, I, which is telling the same story, I would struggle to see the point of it. Whereas if it's kind of filling in some of the blanks, I, mean, I reckon that could add a lot of emotional weight next time you play game two, you know? Yeah, from, from what I've read, it... Does, I, I do get the impression that they will be incorporating some of the story we've seen in the games. But as you say, it would be nice for them to expand on that. And with it being a TV show, I can imagine they will go there, especially if it's quite successful. But for me, the best part of the games was the story. I got fed up with a lot of the gunfights and sneaking around. I, th- I thought that was quite tedious. The only thing that kept me going in the first one was getting a resolution and i have to say i didn't get all the way through the second one i just got fed up with it i think it's quite hard to capture the essence of a video game you know tomb raider you know films like that uh let's be honest with you, i think the best video game adaption is probably detect uh detective pikachu <laughs> <laughs> which it is let's be honest i mean I, I weren't a fan of the resident evil series i liked the first one i thought i thought it went downhill after that it's just quite odd. This is why I'm ha- this is why I'm happy that they've never done an Alan Wake film, because I think Alan Wake is just a perfect video game. And if you want to see the film, just play the game. Yeah, Alan Wake is amazing. But it is. It doesn't seem to be deterring people though, because <laughs> I think recently um, there's been announcements that Eli Roth's doing Borderlands adaptation. Yes. Now I've not I've not played the game. I own the game, but I've not played it. <laughs> so Jim, I mean, is there an actual narrative there? There is, but it's more emphasis on the gameplay. So really, yeah. with Borderlands, as long as you've got the characters, it's probably a free-for-all. Um, 
I've played the first and the third one, and I've got to be honest, I, I only really remember just having fun shooting and looting and not really paying much attention to the story. But I have to say, Ross, to say that Detective Pikachu is the best video game film, someone's obviously never seen Street Fighter, have they? <laughs> hey, folks, have a wee guess, right? I've looked up on the Rotten Tomatoes the uh, five best-rated video game films. What do you reckon is going to be in that top five? And by the way, I can tell you that number five is not fresh. I would say Street Fighter Assassin's Fist. I think that's got quite a good... No chance. No chance. No, not in there. Uh, Hitman, really? No, not in there either. They're all very Super Mario Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Jet Set Willy. Super Mario Brothers, another of those ones where you're like, you couldn't even get the basic iconography <laughs> right. You know, we go, all right, Bowser, great big uh, orange lizard. And then they're like, guy with horns. <laughs> and, um, like, it was so oddly dark. Anyway, yeah, for number five um, on Rotten Tomatoes, there's 43 films we rank. Number five is Rampage, <laughs> which I've never, never seen. Number, uh, number four, next one is Tomb Raider. On 51, so that's a recent Tomb Raider. Uh, to be fair, that's a pretty decent, yeah. good film. That is, I, I quite enjoyed that one, to be honest. Number three, Sonic the Hedgehog, which I never saw. Okay. I thought it was good. Number two is Detective Pikachu, which I, I, I personally thought that was awesome. And uh, the highest rated one on here is the Angry Birds movie part two. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I give up. <laughs> Dear God. But they've, um, I think um, Oscar Isaacs might be playing Snake in Metal Gear Solid as well. Yes, that's that's been in the works for a while, hasn't it? Um, I remember seeing an interview with him about a year or two ago, and it was with IGN, so of course they had to get in some video game questions, and he's basically, yeah, Solid Snake, no questions. So that would be quite interesting. Although I think he would have probably made a better Nathan Drake than Tom Holland. Yes, definitely. I can't see Tom Holland as Nathan Drake at all. He's too young, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, I've never played the games, but I, I've seen the cover and still aren't enough, you know, to realise he's not it. He doesn't quite have a build either. I, yeah. uh, I watched the Assassin's Creed movie, right? And something that, that I think quite is quite endearing about this is Assassin's Creed was a huge passion project for Michael Fassbender. But Michael Fassbender has never played the Assassin's Creed games. Mm, that's yeah, because so, he's a producer on it as well, isn't he? But I, I can commend. I've got to commend you for actually being able to watch all of it because I had to turn it off. It makes me think of it. Someone said to him, "They went right. Here's our concept. Memories are contained in DNA." You go, hold on, but you're 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 born with DNA. You don't it doesn't change as you grow up. How right? It really doesn't matter. <laughs> and um, and, you, and your uh, your DNA will contain the, the memories of all your relatives for hundreds yeah. and hundreds of years, and you can delve into it. In fact, go all the way back to ancient Greece with the memories of your relatives in your DNA. I was like, and, and Michael Fassbender, this is a passion project just based on that concept. But you know, mm. <laughs> fair enough. But on, on the on the worst part of the games, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to use all the all the, the future stuff. That's a bit. Yeah, yeah. Who, who who plays Assassin's Creed Valhalla to piss around with future tech and not kill people with an axe? Oh yeah. god, I got so fucked off when I was playing that game. If we have the cut to the future, I was like, no, no, yeah. let's go back. I want to see Mary. <laughs> <laughs> 
Did anyone watch uh, The Prince of Persia? I didn't. Yes, I have watched it, and I remember it having people in. <laughs> but <laughs> it's Sir Ben's in it, I believe. Yes, it's uh, Mr. Sheen, Brian Clough, in it as well. I think, if I recall. But no, it's it's engaging for the time while you're watching it. But as soon as it's finished, you forgot you've e- what you've even watched. It's, yeah, it's I just think, one of them. Um, <laughs> that's a problem with the video game adaptations for the most part. I mean. I'm a big Hitman fan of the games. I've, I'm not up to speed with the latest, you know, like the reboot, what they've kind of done, although they're quite good. Um, I've, yeah. I've got the first reboot one, um, but all the previous ones, you know, are proper into the game. And yeah, I had such high hopes for that movie. And the one with um, Timothy Oliphant in it, not, because yeah. uh, I think, is it Rupert Friend did yeah, one as well? Yeah, there's been a sequel or two, hasn't there? But Timothy Elephant was the first Agent 47. Yeah, yeah, and it was just a, such a letdown. I've not seen the other one. Personally, I think the best video game film isn't actually based on a video game. And if you say Scott Pixels, Pilgrim. I'm leaving. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Scott Pilgrim that captures yeah, yeah. everything brilliant about that pastime and is such an incredible film. And it's not even based on a game like it is influenced by many many video games as they're all name dropped in there but that is my favorite video game film then you could counter argue that with ready player one steven spielberg <laughs> fuck off <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, wreck it ralph what do you think of that that's, that's a good one actually i enjoyed wreck it ralph uh, the, the less said about the sequel the better but the, there was a lot of good talk you know good cameos I, I liked that they had some of the Street Fighter characters in there. And there's references to Beer Tapper. The, the bar in Record Ralph is called Tappers. I, I like that. And obviously, it just follow, falls into generic Disney film after all the fun of the beginning. But yeah, I enjoyed that. That was good fun. I actually uh, watched Pixels a few weeks ago. Uh, I would just say, you know, when you want to just watch a movie that you can just switch your brain off. And to be honest, I thought it's going to be like. You know, I didn't expect it to be decent or anything, but it was watchable. I didn't think it was... I was expecting it to be really bad, but it weren't too bad. I got a bit of enjoyment out of it. Don't hate me. Don't hate me. You'll be booting me <laughs> off Oracle Films now. <laughs> the biggest compliment I can give Pixels is after watching it, I want to watch Silent Hill 2 again. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we should uh, we should we should wrap this one up. Uh, before uh, I thought we'd we'd briefly say a, a sequel that we enjoyed that we didn't cover here. But first, just a bit of star ratings. Um, what are your star ratings of these ones? I would go the Omen Two for me is a three and a half star film. Psycho Two is a five star film, and Silent oh. Hill Revelations is probably a two star film. I would, after discussing it, I've probably. I'm going to say Psycho 2 is a five-star film. I did originally put it down as a four, but dissecting it a bit more has made me appreciate it a lot more. Um, the same with Damien Omen 2. I had that as a three, but in hindsight, I did enjoy it a lot more than what I felt at the time, and I'm going to say a four for that one. And Silent Hill is just going to be an average three. It's, it's, it's good for what it is, but I'm, I'm well aware of its faults. Uh, Ross? Uh, Psycho, five stars, obviously. 
mm-hmm. uh, Ormond to four stars, only because the original Ormond is probably five star. And Silent Hill, uh, no stars. <laughs> if I'm lucky, one star, one star out of five. One star because it ended. <laughs> and there's Steph. Oh, no, this is a question. Um, I'd say Psycho 2, four and a half mm-hmm. out of five. Um, Almond 2, four out of five. I'd, you see, I'd re- probably rate it out of 10 to give me a bit more leeway. Um, Silent Hill Revelation. Ooh. I mean, I've seen worse films, but... Have you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on. There are worse films out there. Uh, ooh, one and a half. You might push me to a two out of five, but yeah, it's... I didn't really enjoy it, but... I've seen worse. There you have it, folks. That's a horror cult film. Uh, critics, tapes. Critics. I don't call myself a critic. I, I'm, I'd be a blogger, I would say. Do you guys ever use the word critic about yourself? No. Uh, film it's enthusiast. A bit, it's a bit of a wanker's word. Yeah, we're, we're like, no. we're enthusiastic amateurs, yeah. basically. Well, like, I think for horror cult films, for anyone who's listening out there, we just love film. We enjoy it. Um, we don't pretend we're something we're not. We're just a group of people who enjoy film and writing about film. And we don't always enjoy every film. Like, you guys don't enjoy every film. Um, but, you know, we have a passion for what we do. And we love, we genuinely get excited when we get to meet or speak and interview the stars. And we want to know what you want to hear from us as well. If you listen to this, if you want us to talk about a particular film, um, or opinions on film, then get in touch. You know, subscribe to our YouTube channel for keep up to date with everything that's going on. And let us know in the comments that if there's anything you want us to discuss, and we will, because we love film. We're not critics. We're not your snobs or anything like that. We're just like you guys. It just so happens that we got together. Just to say, same to everyone, not everyone on the Dark Discussions Network. Thank you for listening to us there as well. Uh, you've so many good podcasts on that uh, on that network. Whether, whether, we're, uh, whether we're looking at ones like the His and Hers podcast, uh, Cut to the Chase, of course, my personal favourite, and uh, Fresh Cuts as well. All very good. And, you know, we're big fans. And uh, like you, look, we, just, we just fucking love horror movies, cult movies. Can I just say, uh, I should have said this at the beginning when you asked about the history of uh, horror cut films. The best thing about our website is when we were putting the stepping stones in place, uh, we all decided, we all knew that there were some films out there we like to spread the word. There's fil- that's why he's got the cult in the title. Uh, films like Session Nine, The Objective, same as you, David S. When uh, you said about the behind the mask, there's films out there that are not being found by an audience. So if we can find them, review them, and if we just get three people watching, then our website is done its purpose. That's all I like to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, folks, let's finish up with a nice positive note of a sequel that we either enjoy or just think is worth mentioning. I want to men- I want to start with, this isn't a sequel that I hugely enjoy, but I want to briefly talk about the, uh, the Amityville Horror Part 2. Because something about this film that I thought was firstly a great, a great bit of its concept is it saying, okay, well, we're doing a prequel to the first, and here's the backing story for the first which is a lot more interesting than the content of the first film. Now, the first film's about exploring the backing story, and the backing story, you're going, okay, which is quite cool. It took us a while to get there. 
the second one shown this. And it's a really quite good descent that we have, you know, of the uh, young guy being possessed. However, the thing that always baffled me about this film, when he's possessed, he starts coming on to his sister during the movie. And he, you know, we've got a bit where he's they're on the bed, you know, she's doing the poses and he's taking photographs of her and then she strips off her clothes and then they have sex, right? His excuse is he's possessed. She has none, right? <laughs> <laughs> she just fucks him off her own accord. And I always sort of thought like, oh, that's really weird. Um, and uh, it sort of stuck with me. <laughs> like that's the main thing that pulls me out of that movie. Otherwise, a very serviceable prequel. By far the best Amityville horror film. That, I totally agree. That bit is just so fucking weird. So that's my sequel. It's a nasty film, isn't it, David? Mm. It's a very nasty film. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it goes to areas that the rest of the series just doesn't. Yeah. Like, we've got so many Amityville films, and for me, that's where the series peaked. Like, when we have the ones where we're like, ooh, you got the enchanted lamp, ooh. And then they're like, oh, well, you've enchanted lamp's gone, but tell you what, you've now got the enchanted mirror and uh, the enchanted <laughs> clock. Like, it's the most ideal. Dollhouse. <laughs> Don't forget the dollhouse. <laughs> the enchanted dollhouse. <laughs> and now you've got the, you, you generally is one, like Amityville vibra- Vibrator is a recent one, isn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Better than Deal. Hey, Ross, what's the sequel that you want to talk about briefly? Well, I want to go in a different direction only because of what Jim said earlier. Uh, there's one film which I've I've watched many films, even, even no matter how bad they are, I can watch them to the end. There's one film I cannot finish, and that is The Crow 2. <laughs> no, no matter what, no matter how many times I've tried, I totally love The Crow film, but Crow 2, I get 25, 30 minutes in, and I just, I just can't do it. It's such an awful, awful film. I, I haven't seen this seen this one. Like, uh, was this a cinema one or was this a straight to video one? Yes, it was a, it's, a, it's an actual a, a proper attempt of making a Crow film. Now, there's been four films. There's been Crow 3, which is pretty good with Kirsten Dunst. You've got Crow 4 as well, which is very, very bad with uh, Edward Furlong as the Crow. But the second one is just, uh, it's just a really bad film. It's very melodramatic. It's not It's not much storyline. It's, oh, it's awful. I, I can't explain to how bad it is. Have, any, have you seen it, Jim? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I think I remember seeing the trailer way back when, and that was enough to put you off. Uh, it was definitely style over substance, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. City of Angels, it was called, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Steph, have you got a, a sequel you want to you, you talk of? I mean, if we're talking horror, um, the, the Conjuring 2 I quite enjoyed. Better than the first one. Yeah. Um... If we're talking in general, uh, John Wick, Chapter 2. Yeah. Ooh, that was brilliant. Um, I enjoy them all, to be honest. I think it's a series that is somehow managing to keep it the same quality, um, which is hard to do, but they're doing it. And i got to thank the directors, really, um, from the first. Yeah. David Leach, Lech, and um, Chad Stileski. I mean, they've... They've got a background themselves in martial arts um, with the Danny Nassanto Academy. Um, so they know martial arts. And it's thanks to them that um, I think proper action scenes have come back, you know, fight scenes, because we've had, it's for many years now, we've had fight scenes where you don't see anything of what's going on. I mean, the actors might have spent time training in the martial arts, but what 
results in on the screen is it's just a choppy mess it's edited to hell you can't see what's going on and you feel sick and you feel disappointed because you remember the films of you know the 80s you know jean-claude van damme kicking ass and that's what you want you want to see the fight scenes if you're going to go to the lengths of training your actors up show us the bloody fight scenes um and i feel i feel that um with john wick especially with it being a film that's uh, screened theatrically and you know that the cast has a lot to do with that and keanu reeves we know he throws himself into fight scenes i mean have you ever seen um the documentary dvd of the matrix i forget what it's called now um but that shows it's the, the matrix revisited isn't it yeah that's i've it. got that but it's still sat in its wrapping <laughs> you've not watched it Ooh, not watch yet, it. No. It's, it's decent <laughs> well yeah i know that a lot of people involved in john wick and that um i forget the name of the uh, academy they all use for like the pre-visual stuff and where they do all the training a lot of them have been involved in the matrix films haven't they yeah i believe um chad was um, Keanu Reeves' stunt double. I might be wrong on that, but I think I am right that he, he has starred as his stunt double before now. I think that's where they met, The Matrix. Yeah, he's like obviously he's become a lot more high profile over the last couple of years, and he's one when you're revisiting films, you notice his name in the credits, and I think, ah, okay. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is something I've really got into, basically lockdown. Um, just the dissection of all this action and i think what i mentioned in the last episode about going down that rabbit hole of really bad action films has kind of set the wheels in motion for my interest in it and yeah it's you really come to appreciate how technically difficult these things are and when you watch a lot of modern films that don't have these sort of uh, trained people in you really do notice a difference don't you absolutely i mean with this one um the very concept of John Wick, it's kind of ridiculous. And you go, all right, we're bringing Keanu Reeves back um, to the forefront and someone kills his dog. And this is a chain of events where he kills so many people, right? But the world building in it is brilliant. Like, I love the way that they bring in the sort of secret society of assassins. Oh, yeah. The fight scenes are just outstanding. You know, like, uh, there's that one way from the museum where you've got the sort of weapons and stuff yeah. uh, around yeah, you. Like, that yeah. was so good. Like, the only film that comes particularly close to me for recent fight scenes is The Raid. Yeah, yeah. They're, they are very good. And, and again, they, they, they're proper martial artists in it. That's why it's so good. Uh, Jim, have you got a, 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 a sequel that you wish to talk about? Oh, you bet I do. Strike of the Panther featuring Jason Blade. <laughs> <laughs> You're really into this sequel? now, aren't you? I'm kidding. Um, I'm going to steer it back to horror. Uh, there's been quite a few that I, you know, could have brought up, but uh, I mentioned it before. And um, with the weight of expectation on its shoulders, that's Doctor Sleep. That was such an impressive follow-up to one of the best films ever made. Not just a great horror film, but The Shining is one of my all-time favourites. And to follow that up with a film that is just as strong just as scary and just as absolutely mind-bogglingly brilliant it's incredible and i never expected it in a million years to be as good as it was and ewan mcgregor who is someone i often write off just absolutely astonished me at how good he was playing the older danny 
that is many films that are, on, that are all number twos. Uh, one last thing. Uh, Jim, last time we were recording this, I accidentally missed you out at one point when we were talking about bad supernatural films. And I listened back to recording and went, shit, he never got to talk about the first Annabelle film. <laughs> I was wondering if briefly you could tell us what you thought of the first Annabelle It's not supposed to be a comedy, is it? Because <laughs> uh, I was laughing a lot at that film. I, I just couldn't believe how ridiculous it was. No, I mean, <laughs> there's suspension of disbelief and then there's Annabelle. I just couldn't get into it at all. I thought it was utterly ridiculous. I mean, I've forgotten more than I remember about it now. It's It's been a good few years. Um, and which is probably how I was so amazed that how brilliant the sequel was as well. But for a film about a possessed doll, it'd be a bit more, I don't know, something to do with the doll rather than people just going nuts and killing other people. I, I, I guess my expectations are somewhat different, but it was just a terrible, terrible film and it was laughably bad. I, yeah, as I say, I've forgotten more than I can remember about it. All I remember is having a laugh watching it, but you know, for what it is, it's rubbish. Guys, can I just say, go back. There's a there's a film by Bob Odenkirk coming out in the next couple of weeks with uh, you know, Better Call Saul called Nobody, in which he plays like a John Wick character. So I recommend <laughs> anyone to watch that because it looks absolutely awesome. And also probably the one of the most underrated sequels in the last five, six years has probably been the Blair Witch 2 sequel. And I need to put that out there because I thought it was absolutely fantastic and it didn't get the credit it deserved. Do you mean the third one or the second one? No, the se- no I saw your third one. Yeah, yes. the third one. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. That, for me, is the only uh, film I've particularly enjoyed with uh, Adam Wingard behind it. Yes. Yeah. I thought, oh. that, I thought that was excellent. I'm sorry, I forgot about Book of Shadows because that's probably one of the worst sequels. It's not a book, people. It's not a book. Why call it Book of Shadows? It's not a book. There's no book in the film. Anyway, never mind. If you're, if you're listening... Uh to this podcast you should have seen david's face when ross mentioned the sequel it was one of the best films ever it was <laughs> if you listen to the first podcast you'll realize that was a uh, that was actually his on his worst list so i just thought i'd mention that <laughs> let me clarify i meant blair witch the proper sequel not book of shadows blair witch i quite i really enjoyed it i think it had quite a nice kind of punk rock feel about it it was very yeah. energetic where the first was a slow burn yeah, he still did a lot of the iconography, but it was so much more in your face. Um, yeah, yeah, fan, a big, fan, big fan. Uh, it should, it should have done a lot better than it did. What did yeah. you guys think of? Uh, this is going off completely off topic now. So if you're going to talk about EastEnders, forget about it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't normally watch soaps. It's just you know, recently. Leave me alone. Right, the Evil Dead remake because that gets a lot of love, but I hated it. I hated it as well. Well, I, I thought it was okay. Why, why do you guys hate it? I thought it was, I mean, it was violent, it was bloody, it was set more serious than, than I don't than want serious. I, I never bothered with it myself. Um, I enjoy the first, like the originals, but I never really cared for the remake. But I mean, there's always the stigma that's carried with remakes, isn't there? And I often yeah. tend to tread carefully when it comes to them. I get why it's popular. I get why the modern audience like it. But if you haven't got Bruce Campbell in the film, then what's the point? Films don't need to be extreme. I think that's what some people are missing. I think you need to go extreme if you've not got the story. Yeah. I think it's a cop-out. 
and the, the thing about you know the first Evil Dead um, is that it what you know it was watchable and it wasn't like oh my god there's people being impaled in these ways or you know because she goes a bit over top with that tongue stuff I might have dreamt this but it does happen doesn't it in the film but Steph it's like the Friday 13th uh, remake they made us so serious they actually lost what Friday 13th is about and that's just fun Jason going around killing virgins yeah that's what the that's what the that's what the franchise is all about and when you make it all serious and stylish it just doesn't work yeah, it was a very Mickey. It was kind of like a Bear Grylls character, basically. Yeah. Oh, and he could run. Oh, my God, he could run. Woo. That's innovation for you. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> I think, like, like, I agree, uh, Steph, with the sort of um, gore and kind of extreme horror point. Like, I, I like quite a lot of extreme films. Like, probably, I, I reckon Pound for Pound Martyrs is one of my all-time favourite horror films. It's, I think it's an absolutely fantastic watch. And I think it warrants the um, kind of extremity that it goes to. At the same time, um, you get a lot of ones, like I watched a Serbian film, and for me, I just sort of find Serbian film a bit, a bit like, a bit tedious after a while. Like, it's got some very, very uh, grim, violent bits, but that's not really enough. You know, you've got to be invested in the character journey. Like, it's not like, you know, if I say I, I don't like a Serbian film, it's not because I'm, like, offended by it or anything like this. I wasn't uh, wasn't triggered. I just thought it was simply a bit of a boring movie. Uh, you know, the, uh, it, 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 you know, you can, you can do a great film where the mood is so tense despite having almost nothing, uh, nothing graphic in it. Like, a good example of that would be uh, Creep, you know, the one with the dude's making the, uh, he's on Craigslist, he's making a video about that, about 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 the guy who's, the guy who's a killer, and uh, you've got one second of on-screen yeah, violence, I love so creep. tense at points. Creep one and two. That's another one. Creep Brilliant. two, fantastic sequel, fantastic mm. sequel. And uh, you know, it's it shows like that's total minimalist filmmaking there. It's fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, uh, folks, I think we've got to wrap this one up. Thank you very much for listening for me and from everyone else. Bye, guys. Goodbye. For news, reviews, and features, check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk. Music by White Bat Audio.